Tito's and Shiner Gonna be an all-nighter And I just might find her At the Whataburger line Dance halls and women But man, I'm wishing That I was fishing by the river tonight In Texas Howdy, 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 everyone. Welcome back to... That was a really good intro. Welcome back to another special, wonderful, amazing episode of your favorite podcast and mine, the Texas Podcast, the show about some things Texas. And some things not. We have got a super informational, educational, enticing interview with journalist, all-around amazing, golden-piped voice person, Jay Root. He really puts us to shame. Like, what are we even doing? Really, halfway through the podcast, I thought he should... He should podcast. be doing this. He should be doing our job. I, I wish that I was listening to the radio. <laughs> I'm glad he was here, but it would yeah, have almost been even better to have him coming through a speaker. Yeah, exactly. Jay is a journalist at the Houston Chronicle, formerly of the Texas Tribune. He also has a really two really good documentaries about the Texas border and immigrant. Mm-hmm. We highly recommend you check out yeah, both of them. Both of them. They are linked through his Twitter at at by Jay Root. Go give him a follow. Give him a shout out. You're about to learn a whole lot about how the people of Texas are burdened by unfair taxes. True. But before we get to that and, and feel good about think. it, <laughs> and it's not what I think, we have a couple of not sponsors. As always, your favorite part of the podcast and ours, not sponsors. We our love first how they don't give money. us money. Our first <laughs> not sponsor of this episode of Tex-ish is... Bitcoin miners and educators on Instagram. Mm. Bitcoin miners and educators on Instagram. Do you know nothing about crypto but want to learn from it from a Russian troll farm sliding into your DMs? Bitcoin educators and people. What a prestigious number of people. What Do a, what you a just group. love when people slide into your DMs that you don't know and their names are Shane69420 underscore crypto? Then you go to their page and see a picture of one person by a Lamborghini, but a picture of a whole other person in a suit at a standing desk. And their message is, you look like an influencer. Would you like to influence more people? Invest in our crypto now. It seems really legit. I've put like <laughs> 20K into it already. I think you're going to get your money back. I think I'm going to get it back 20-fold. Crypto miners and educating influencers. You'll they get your money back. They are legit. <laughs> it's like a Nigerian print scam, but more legitimate. You're terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Who's our other not sponsor? Our other not sponsor today is Texas Sweet Tea. Yum. You got cavities? You're gonna. (laughs) Texas Sweet Tea, the only acceptable drink by Texas moms and Texas grandmas everywhere. Texas Sweet Tea, if you don't drink it with 10 packs of sugar, you're going to hell. Texas Texas Sweet Sweet Tea. Tea. Is that a chicken fried steak you order? I'll go ahead and bring you a gallon of sweet tea. Texas Sweet Tea. Yeah, I am in the drive-thru, and I would like 10 gallons of sweet tea. Uh, Would I like fries with that? No, I wouldn't, but I will take an extra pack of sugar. Texas (laughs) Sweet Tea. tea. Texas Sweet Tea pairs perfectly 
with a large cup of sonic ice. Texas, Texas sweet, sweet tea. tea. Answering the question, can you have a fully saturated solution with sugar? <laughs> yes, you can. Texas, Texas sweet, sweet tea. tea. Ripped off by Red Bull. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm, I've just I've started using a Texas sweet tea as my pre Perry and post-workout. Pre <laughs> post-workout. Are you drinking sweet tea right now? No, I'm drinking. Coffee. That's actually coffee? Yeah, okay. Like I mean, the coffee. sweet tea is probably more powerful, mm-hmm. but... Well, I want to actually be able to sit here. You want to actually like, ease into engaged. the day. You don't, don't want to shoot through the roof. Look, man, I don't start my day with crack. I work up to it. That's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. You Thank take you. a small hit. Small, small One hit, hitter. And we go from there. And then you do a bump. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> starting the day off right here, guys. What happened once upon a time in Texas history? So this podcast is being released on Martin Luther King Day. It is. And Martin Luther King went to Texas several times. I'm actually not going to be talking about like one of his speeches because he gave several um, in Dallas and worked really hard to push the civil rights movement forward. But I'm going to take it all the way back to Texas formation as a country. And I'm going to talk about a specific battalion of Irish soldiers okay. that fought for Mexico. Okay. They were called St. Patrick's Battalion, and their ranks grew to an estimated 200 people who did not agree with the way that Texas was running its government at the time. Specifically, they did not agree with Texas upholding slavery. And they were upholding it pretty hard. Pretty fiercely, that was part of the Constitution. And St. Patty's Batty was like, hold a sec, hold on a sec. <laughs> hold on a sec. So this entire battalion joined Santana's troops and fought against other people in Texas. Whoa. And so I'm going to talk about the Battle of Monterey, which was on September of 18, in September of 1846. Hit me with it. What happened, basically, is news of desertion, and, and you know, uh, they essentially considered that um, a, a, what would you call it, a rebellion, a, uh, like if somebody goes against the United States, you yeah. are a traitor. They, yeah. they consider them all traitors. You're a Benedict. <laughs> well, it's still a dick, but also, they, <laughs> uh, so they kind of surrounded the cathedral where they were held up. Okay. And instead of asking for surrender right away, they continued attacking, killing civilians and things and wow. those types of things. So St. Patrick's Battalion. And they, meaning Texans, Texans surrounded surrounded a cathedral where Mexican citizens were. Okay. Um, And basically just overwhelmed them with numbers. So St. Patrick's Battalion fought to the last. They ended up capturing about 75 people, killing the rest of them. Okay. And they kind of went down in history, even within uh, within Mexico. Santana uh, asserted that with a few hundred more, like, St. Patrick's Battalion, he could have won. Wow. And it's not so much that I want to honor that as I want to honor the spirit of fighting for what you believe for. Definitely. What, what you believe in. What you believe in when it's counter to what people would probably assume you're supposed to believe in, too. Exactly. Because um, I'm also assuming that the bulk of St. Patrick's Battalion were probably farmers or probably people who also... Mm-hmm. Came to Texas because farmable land was plentiful, and that did involve slave labor for a lot mm-hmm. of people who looked who were white and who looked like them. Exactly, and they were also prejudiced. Uh, they also experienced a lot of prejudice from other Texan settlers because they were Catholic. Yeah, and there was a lot of Catholic, you know, uh, dislike among mm-hmm. at that point. Distaste, distaste. So to speak. Yeah. 
They didn't. They didn't. They didn't drive with like standing up and sitting down. Yeah, constantly. During <laughs> they, they, Even if they did get to get blasted at the end yeah. of it, they mm-hmm. they weren't down. They for weren't all the down for all the, the Latin Latin on their knees. Yeah, you know. Well, I'm really glad you shared that because yeah. I did not know um, about that. I don't know that a lot of people parallel. do. And I did want to. I want to draw that parallel and again reiterate that today is one of those days that. Martin Luther King is easily one of the more influential people in American history. Oh, easily. And he turned the tides to... He he is credited with fulfilling the Founding Fathers' original vision of all men being created equal. Yep. There's a speech he gave in Dallas where he famously said, the Constitution does not say all white men. Mm-hmm. It does not say all Protestant men. It mm-hmm. does not say only some men. It says all men are mm-hmm. created equal. And I truly believe that. And so today we honor him and we honor people who do what they believe in and do the right thing regardless of public sentiment. And, and fight not just for themselves, but for others. For the rights for, of others. I feel like, especially today, just to take a moment, Yeah, a lot of fighting seems to be us versus them mm-hmm. or one group versus another group. One, one leader with a few followers fighting another group of one leader with a few followers. Yeah. Martin Luther King stands head and shoulders above a lot of people in general, but especially leaders because high heels. Even when he, even when he was unfortunately murdered for doing what was right, there was a wave of people behind him who were still fighting for the collective. Rare it it is historically we have evidence of what you call martyrs, mm-hmm. um, and he definitely falls in that category oh, yeah. uh, of somebody who, who died fighting for yeah. what he believed in. He, he was fighting for the good of even the people who disagreed with him. Yeah, exactly. Because the reality is all men are created equal makes us a better country. It makes mm-hmm. our communities better communities, makes our people better people. And today we, uh, we honor Martin Luther King. Shouts out MLK. There you go. I'm going to go hang out at your street later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready to hear about our? City I, I would love of to hear about week? our city of the week. <laughs> Wait, city or small town? Small town. <laughs> so this is our small town. We were there, Johnson City. Johnson City, Tennessee. I've no, got. It's oh. not. No, it's no, <laughs> no. Johnson. Sorry, Johnson City, Texas, Texas. See, it doesn't really. Anyway, hey, are you are you from Texas? Because you're the only ten I see. <laughs> Sorry, okay, Johnson City, Texas, small oh town of the god. week. Oh my god, I'm gonna leave. This is the day I quit the <laughs> you podcast. You can't leave, this is your house. <laughs> oh, mm, I'm gonna go to my room. Okay. Uh, Johnson City is the county seat of Blanco County, Texas. Blanco County, Texas. Population 1,656 at the 2010 census. All right. Founded in 1879 by James P. Johnson. It was named for early settler Sam E. Johnson Sr. Johnson City is part of the Texas German Belt region. All right. And the biggest kind of claim to fame here, it's a, it's a pretty little city. We drove through it. Adorable. Really cool looking. You say home to over 1,000 people. I say home to an adorable downtown area. Home to an adorable downtown area. We can get you <laughs> locked into a nice little German cottage for $300,000. $300,000 a night. <laughs> so the big thing was Johnson City is the home of President Lyndon, Lyndon B. Johnson. Johnson. That's where he was born. There's a lot of Johnsons lot in Johnson Johnsons City, Tennessee. Johnson City. Texas. I, I would imagine that he was related to the founder. One would assume. 
And kind of, you know, Johnson City's on the way to Fredericksburg. Yeah. It's, it is what it is. It's a small little German city where you yep. can get you can get a little bite to eat, yep. get some fresh fruit, and look at some some adorable little mm-hmm. German homes. And there's a beautiful little part of I think it's the Colorado River because it flows into Lake LBJ from Johnson City. But there's a beautiful expansive section of the Colorado River running through the outside of town, and it is sort of funny even driving through it the other day for some activities that we'll share at the end of the week into next week. Stay tuned. I had the thought of, I've been to Fredericksburg a few times. Everyone loves Fredericksburg. Cute downtown, German influence, Adorable. boutique shops, all the things. And as we were driving through Johnson City, I had a thought that I'm sure more than, more than just me, a thought of, screw Fredericksburg, I'm just going to come here. Because there was less people, but it looks like the same place. It looks like the same place. It looked like you just transposed downtown Fredericksburg right there. Right onto Johnson City. And there was nothing else. Except the t-shirts in the shop are like $10 right, instead, instead of $75 of- at Fredericksburg. Shout down Fredericksburg. <laughs> this is an anti-Fredericksburg I mean, look, we, podcast. We are, we're taking a hard stance here. <laughs> like the Irish immigrants, we despise Fredericksburg. Yes. We think it's a holdout for Nazi Germany. Yep. I mean, just look at the name. Frederick. Way, way too much subpar wine. Yes. From Lubbock. From, I mean, come on now. Not they, to just go off on Fredericksburg yeah. all of a sudden. You know what? Let's do it. Let's, let's do go, it. Let's okay. go off on Fredericksburg. For those who I've don't know. I've been to Fredericksburg like five or six times at this point, and I've never had fun not once. Okay, I've had fun every time I've gone. I will say that. But the intellectual hypocrisy of come check out our vineyards, when I think it's almost all of those vineyards, the vines that you see in front are fake. Yeah. And all the grapes they're making their wine with are imported from Lubbock. That's not how you say that. They don't import that. They are from Lubbock. Like, they're farmed in Lubbock. I mean, you could still say import. Imported. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. They're outsourced from Lubbock. Sure. So the grapes aren't even local to Fredericksburg. No, they're local to Lubbock, which So we're probably everything. never going to be welcome to Fredericksburg again. Probably not. But Johnson City, we are a pro-Johnson hey, City we are, podcast. We are a pro-Johnson City Texas podcast. Texas loves you, Johnson City. Watch us figure out that, like, Tons of horrific things happened in Johnson City. And that's why I know what <laughs> Well. It's like Johnson City, home of the secret nuclear And as with disposal, almost all of our opinions, everything we just said could change tomorrow. Could change in five minutes. Let the record show that the Texas bros did state, we're joking. Let me show that I, I have hard and fast opinions and they change just as hard and quickly. Which might be the most Texan thing about us. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You want to hear about our badass? Always. It is, as we said, Martin Luther King Day. Yeah. So I, too, last night was really trying to find a good representation of a Texan who was not just similar to MLK, but was in the fight with MLK and in the yeah. fight for equality and in the fight to end segregation, at least get one step closer. closer to true equity and equality racially. And so I came across a fantastic, amazing person George Albert McElroy, born May 25th, 1922 in Houston, Texas. He was a prominent pioneering African-American journalist. Among many firsts achieved by McElroy, he became the first African-American to earn a master's degree in journalism from the University of Missouri. And I'm going to go a little bit longer on his background, but it's definitely worth it to do a deep dive on how amazing George McElroy was. After he was honorably discharged from the military, McElroy returned to his still segregated segregated home state of Texas. Due to segregation, 
He f- he was forced to attend Texas Southern University, then called Texas State University for Negroes, after being denied admission to the University of Texas. He had applied to UT following the landmark decision of Sweat versus Painter. In his letter of denial from UT, he was told that UT and Tucson, Texas Southern University for Negroes, both offered the courses he was seeking. Being a Negro, according to segregation laws, he had to attend Tucson. He responded to the denial letter from UT, stating that although the courses were offered at both universities, there was nothing else equal about the universities. McElroy sued for the right to attend UT, but ultimately earned his bachelor's degree in journalism from Tucson in 1956. Ironically, 60 years later, his daughter Kathleen was named director of the School of Journalism and Media at the University of Texas. Go. Talk about poetic justice. Go. Suck it, UT. Technically journalistic justice. Poetry is a different department. Uh, Just let me have this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) McElroy received a scholarship from the Wall Street Journal Mm -hmm. to attend the University of Missouri. In 1970, he became the first African-American to earn a master's degree in journalism from that university. In 1937, McElroy landed a job as a youth column writer at The Informer, the oldest African-American newspaper in Texas. He He was paid $3 per column. Throughout his off-and-on 58 tenure with the newspaper, he functioned in virtually every capacity of running the periodical. He retired from that specific paper in 1996, but served as editor emeritus until his death in 2006. So he was always highly involved with the informer. After graduation from the University of Missouri, McElroy considered several job offers and accepted a position as colored sports writer from the now defunct Houston Post daily newspaper in 1954, and in 1956, he became a weekly columnist. He was the first black reporter and first black columnist at the paper, which at the time was the largest morning paper in Texas. In In spite of his position at the paper... As a columnist, uh, his likeness in the paper above his column was not the same like actual picture as every other journalist. It was just a sketch to block out the fact that he was yeah. colored, black, whatever they wanted to call it. In response to this, he said, the world, the nation, the state, the city are all multicolored, as in a rainbow, and multiracial. A professional journalist simply cannot afford to reside in a racial isolation ward. He must travel, and he must converse, and he must observe, and he must be curious. And then in 1960, wait, where was, yeah, in 1960, 13 students from Texas Southern, led by Edward Stearns, had a sit-in at the counter at a Houston-area wine garden store in protest of segregation using a model laid out by experienced sit-in students at Fisk University. In planning how to attract press coverage for the sit-in, they contacted McElroy for input, who committed to send a a photographer from the informer and advised on calling the police themselves. The tip proved to be instrumental in the protest. Over 100 people eventually participated in the protest, which ended peacefully. The Houston television and printed press coverage dubbed the event as the first sit-in west of the Mississippi. So he helped out with the first sit-in west of the Mississippi. McElroy also served as the Texas correspondent for Jet Magazine and was elected as president of the Press Club of Houston. Throughout his career as a journalist, McElroy interviewed numerous persons of interest, including Martin Luther King Jr., Fidel Castro, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, and six American presidents. In a 2000 interview, so closer to his death, McElroy stressed the continued need for black press, stressing that African-Americans are closer to the issues concerning their own community, and he credits black press for being first in bringing the effects of crack cocaine into the limelight long before it was deemed an issue in mainstream media. 
and he was quoted as saying, we cover issues that the major dailies don't see or fail to see. We're closer to the problems and concerns in our own community. We see them first. George McElroy. George McElroy. Freaking amazing person. Heck yeah. And I'm very thankful for him. As am I. Very cool. All right, y'all. So as George was a journalist who did a lot of incredible things, covered amazing, groundbreaking stories, we have Jay Root on the podcast today. We're going to get to his interview yes, here in a second. Amazing, We're going to talk journalist. all about his most recent piece mm-hmm. on how parsonages, religious buildings, and really church mm-hmm. buildings that house pastors can... Dodge taxes. Dodge taxes and very large tax breaks. And so uh-huh. we're going to get into that. We're also going to talk about the work he's done the at border. the border yeah. and with immigration policy, the things he's covered there. Before we get there, don't forget Never Rest Coffee Company. Never rest. Never rest. Never stop. Never resting. Go to neverrest.com. Order yourself some K-Cups, some coffee, some light roast, some dark roast, and throw in text-ish, all caps, at checkout for a 10% discount on your That's coffee. Right. 10% off your insomnia. 10%, 10% off your ability to get up and get after it. Neverus.com, 10% discount code, all caps, text-ish, T-E-X-I-S-H, 10% off Neverus Coffee Company. Without further ado, J-Root. I mean, the thing that was really great about this one is that we live in an environment now where the Texas Public Information Act is really under assault mm-hmm. and has been for years. Um, they're always adding new exemptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but for property records, you can actually get a lot of records. Okay. And so the records really helped helped us tell the story in a way that reminds me of the way it used to be like 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I remember when they reformed it in the 90s, and then when John Cornyn was the attorney general, those were four great years for for transparency. Mm -hmm. um, It reminded me a little bit of that because we we were able, you know, we'd we'd go back and get these old records, and you'd see that, for example, um, people would, right on there, you know, a three acre parsonage and, and, you know, the law says they can only be one acre and yep, approved, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> yeah. no, it's like, it seems like the answer was, is always yes. You know, mm. like they just, and in, in your research and in your investigations, like, why did you find that was, I, I think it's a combination of things. I think one thing that's happened is, that, well, let me back up and say that this is a real reminder to me, a, 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 a sort of a cautionary tale that like we we need to be looking more closely mm-hmm. at what uh, property exemptions are out there and how they're being approved and whether or not there needs to be some tighter reins on mm-hmm. that, better records and better data. And that definitely came through in this investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the reason why so many, uh, frankly, illegal parsonages is that's what they are, really. I mean, mm-hmm. they shouldn't have, they should have never been approved because the Constitution since 1928, uh, well, since 1929, because I guess the voters approved it in 1928 and then it took effect after that, but has. Um, has been limited. You cannot have a clergy residence that is greater than one acre. And 
somehow, well, why are they getting approved? I think part of it is a lack of awareness. I mean, I, the Cameron County chief appraiser told me that he was not aware of the one acre limit. He said, he said, when you told me about this section of the code, that's the first time I'd ever read it. Oh, wow. And it's like he'd been in, you know, for years has been the Cameron County chief appraiser. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in, in a way, I feel for the I do feel for the appraisal districts because it's a lot for them to yeah. do. It's a lot to keep up with, um, you know. But this has been on the books for almost a hundred years. Yeah. yeah, and so I think it's a lack of awareness. I also think, and we 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 reported this that it's hard to tangle with the churches. You mm-hmm. know, people, uh, religious groups have a lot of power. Uh, a lot of power in communities, and particularly in some of the smaller appraisal districts. Um, the Hunt County Chief Appraiser, who is also the legislative director for the Association of a, uh, the Texas Association of Appraisal Districts, told us that you know you may deny an exemption to a church, and you may go to that church, and then you may be asked not to return to that. Yeah, church. you might even be a right. deacon at that church. Correct. Your involvement yeah. might be even more than just. I sit there every other Sunday. Right. Yeah, and that's that's got to be really difficult to try and create equity among all of that mm-hmm. and still feel like you're part of the community. Yeah, I, I do think that there, there's a strong social aspect to this. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, religion is, is, is very front and center in a lot of people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so um, when a... a a preacher or some kind of religious leader comes in and asks for a clergy residence exemption. A lot of times it's no questions asked. And and the other thing is too, is that, I mean, the the thing that I I found was interesting was that we found a lot of examples of really opulent places, expensive places. um, And, but the, the above one acre thing, the reason why that stood out is like, it's already easy to get one of these, right? Yeah. And so um, there aren't that many. I mean, what 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 is a clergy? There's no definition. <laughs> what is religion? There's no definition. Yeah. What what is what are all of these institutions? Mm-hmm. But there is that one acre limit, and some it's like, how do you not? The acres defined. It's, like, <laughs> it's defined. It, it's either an acre, or uh, it's either above an acre, or it isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. there's not a lot of wiggle room there. Yeah. As far as just like definitions. Mm-hmm. Right. And we got we got into the weeds pretty quick, so I want to yeah. zoom back out before okay, we because sure. I want to be in the weeds, but let's yeah. zoom out <laughs> before we because I want everyone who listens to have this whole conversation because yeah. it's so fascinating. Just really quick, high level view. I mean, we have the papers sitting right in front of us. Thanks for right. bringing those, by the way. But you've been an investigative journalist for how long? A little over thirty years. Thirty so. years, and you've done excellent work. A lot of work with the border here in Texas. Uh, border hustle is one of the documentaries that you've. Mm-hmm had a huge hand in making this recent story with Houston Chronicle is a four part series on the tax exemptions that is it religious parsonages or church parsonages specifically. It's religious because yeah, church is kind of, uh, we, we used it a little, we, we, we discovered when we were writing headlines mm-hmm. and some news summaries that, it was hard to get away from the word church, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a shorthand for religion, but it's not exactly the same thing because, you know, you've got synagogues, you have yeah. temples, you right. have 
you know, Hindu organizations mm-hmm. are much more loosely orga- organized. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we found a lot of non-traditional mm-hmm. um, religious groups that were in this space. But the but there are way more Christian yeah. uh, entities that we that we came across. For sure. so just in terms of volume, just yeah, by virtue of being where we're for, located, sure. for sure, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and so oh, you go. Ahead. Oh no, well, I was curious. You grew up in Liberty, Texas. Is religion something that you grew up with? Is this absolutely okay, yes? Yeah. I, I was raised Catholic. I was an altar boy for seven years. Wow. I I I've often said that that. For me, being Catholic in the South was was a good thing. I mm-hmm. think you know, um, we had a we had blacks in our church. We mm-hmm. we went to school into catechism yeah. um, with blacks and Hispanics and some of the Protestant churches that um, did not. They didn't yeah. have a single person of color yeah. in any yeah. of you know those churches, and so that was something that I thought was was helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point I wanted to be a priest, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and uh, I really did. I, I, I don't think I've ever actually told anyone that, but, but <laughs> I, I was very, I was very serious mm-hmm. in catechism. And, um, I, uh, it one in fact, at one point when I was 15 years old, I had a really bad motorcycle wreck. And the first thing I said was, could you call a priest? Apparently, it really freaked out the paramedic wow, who yeah. was checking on me. Um, and my mom was so proud of me for that. Right. Nice. Um, but it's not near as a prominent mm-hmm. uh, thing in my life as it, as it once was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do feel like um, I got a lot out of being yeah. Catholic. And, and I, I, I certainly embrace a lot of the values that I that I got from church, not all of them, but right. a lot of them I did. I think mm-hmm. a lot of them are really good values. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so, but I will say this is that one of the things that was a huge discovery for me and, and, and just interrupt me if I'm like rambling oh, wait, no. here. No, but, this, this is your this show, man. Okay. Like yeah. we get to just share your knowledge yeah. with the okay, world. Okay. Well, um, and we're curious. Well, yeah. one, of, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating is that if you're in this world, particularly the prosperity gospel preachers and, and there's, there's quite a lot of that in this because of the, the teaching is that um, of the one of the central teachings of the prosperity gospel is that prosperity is an outward sign of mm-hmm. God's blessing blessing yeah. on, in your life, right? Yeah. And well, so, then the pastor of those churches seems to be the most blessed from a wealth standpoint, correct? Because... And so, and so it stands to reason that these guys, these are some of the guys that are going to have. Uh, the the nicest houses yeah. and the the most opulent and in some cases above one acre. Right. Um, but if you're in that world, you these guys are celebrities. Mm-hmm. Kenneth Copeland is a an international superstar celebrity mm-hmm. that if you're in that world, you know him. Everyone knows him. For example, my sister knew who he was. I. Yeah. When I saw him, I was like, I've seen this guy before. I know I've probably seen some meme on Twitter or something, but I really didn't know who Kenneth Copeland was. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I didn't know who a lot of these people are. And so um, that that was a real eye-opener to mm-hmm. me was like how um, well-known they are for the people that worship in those circles. Yeah, yeah for sure. Absolutely. And so... 
now that the story's out, again, we have the papers sitting right in front of us. I'm really thankful for that, by the way, because yeah, I've been reading much. it online, and I prefer to have a physical yeah, copy. Yeah. When did this story and this idea for this series come across your desk or come to your attention, especially as somebody who doesn't really walk in like the church circle, so to speak? Right. It's, it's interesting how this came about. So um, my former editor, Susie Carroll, um, she has moved on now and works at NBC, but she actually started this. She, we, we started this series called Unfair Burden. Okay. That's what, this is part of the Unfair Burden series. Mm-hmm. We had three installments of it. This was the last installment. And, and the first installment was um, these um, Chapter 313 agreements, which are um, economic development agreements in which um, typically uh, capital-intensive industries, you have to... You have to meet a certain amount of like money and capital investment. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but um, it's typically like petrochemical plants. Mm -hmm. Um, And the thinking is, is that we need to do something special for these big companies like this to get them to come and relocate here and create jobs. But what we found was that it's number one, it's shifting the burden to everyone else. And then secondly, a lot of times the job creation targets don't get met or certain regulations aren't met, but they get approved anyway. Um, Then we did one on local agreements called 380 agreements. Um, Dell has one for Dell computer has one in round rock, for example. Um, And um, again, you know, tax shifting type thing Mm -hmm. where it ends up shifting the burden. That's why we call it unfair burden. So I was asked to, you know, hey, wh- how what can you contribute here, Jay? Yeah, for but, sure. You know, and I was like, and 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 it was suggested that we that I do ag exemptions, and I really didn't want to tackle ag exemptions at that point. I think okay. I think it's a worthy topic. I would like to do it at some point, but I felt like it was just too big and it wasn't specific enough, mm-hmm. and so. I wanted to look at something specific. I thought about like maybe bees, you know, because people put bees on their property and get tax breaks. But that's already kind of been done. It's already Mm -hmm. been written. So I was looking for something new and different. Mm -hmm. And I went in and talked to my typical sources. I have, you know, sources around the Capitol. and, And one of my sources said, you really need to look at religious organizations look at their businesses look at their homes i was like their homes he's like yeah look at kenneth copeland's home (laughs) who's kenneth copeland you know remind me who kenneth copeland Mm -hmm. is and then i'm like and so i looked at kenneth copeland's home that there had been some reporting on that like Mm -hmm. you can you can google kenneth copeland's house and yeah it's massive and i was like eighteen thousand square feet on eagle mountain lake in 15 minutes north of fort worth it's like, wow, that's, you know, and, and the, the appraisal when I first started looking at it was $11 million. Mm-hmm. They actually disputed it and brought it down to $7 million. But, I mean, it, a property like that, what do you, how do you put a value right. on a so, property yes. like that? It's, it's, a, it's, a unique, it's a unique property. I mean, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. uh, if they sell it one of these days, I, I, I will be very interested <laughs> to see what kind of price it Like what number actually it's comes out. It's a really nice house. <laughs> and so the problem comes in, right, where you're looking at their you know, living is lavish kind of lifestyles in certain areas, at least property wise. And they're basically exempt from all taxes. Well, what I did was, so, so, um, I started looking at the law. So I'm like, well, okay, so Mm -hmm. what is the law? I was like, okay, well in 1928, um, after the 1927 legislature passed a constitutional amendment 
And then the way constitutional amendments work is that then the voters have to approve it, and if the voters approve it, then it becomes a part of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And um, what I discovered was before 1929, um, houses for uh, ministers of the gospel, or in, uh, at that point it was pretty much only the gospel, yeah. Catholic and Protestant, um, but um, for the most part, not entirely, but mostly. Um, but, uh, there, I, I found the one acre restriction. Um, and it, it, before that they weren't allowed to have parsonage exemptions and mm-hmm. other states were, and I think some appraisal districts just l- approved it, but then there was a court case where one got rejected. And so mm-hmm. it got to the attention of the legislature, the legislature passed it, the voters approved it, goes on the books and so basically what the law says is that um, a religious organization can not only claim a 100% property tax exemption on their churches, you know, the typical church, the actual right. building of the church or yeah. whatever, right? But they, can, they also can have a, uh, a parsonage, a clergy residence. It, it's defined in different ways. The word parsonage actually is not in the Constitution. Okay. That's just what they're known colloquially yeah. as. Mm-hmm. Um, clergy residence is it's a dwelling for ministers is, yeah. of, of a religious organization. Is what the Constitution says. And then actually in the code, the property tax code, it says the clergy, uh, 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 okay. uh, residence for clergy. It has mm-hmm. to be for clergy. The problem, of course, is like, what is clergy? We don't even know. Right? <laughs> like, how, that could it's be like, the youth right. intern one summer for all it, we Well, know. like, it, for example, in Highland Park Presbyterian, they had two seminary students okay. that are justifying these 100% property tax breaks. And mm-hmm. so one, once I started digging into that and looking at the homes, I, I that's when I went back to Susie. I said, hey, I think I have a good story here. Yeah. She was like, yeah, this sounds great. Go for it. Go for it, right? Yeah. So I started collecting stuff. This was actually before the blackout of February of last year. And then when the blackout hit, I had to get off of it for a couple of months and mm-hmm. do that. But I was still submitting open records requests yeah. mm-hmm. and getting this information here in. Uh, um, the thing that, like, when I first looked at the Copeland property, it's it, if you look at what's online in the Tarrant Appraisal District, it says 24 acres. So I'm like, oh, my God, like... This is blowing the one acre limit, yeah. but actually, once I started digging into it, I found that um, it's it's basically out of a twenty four acre tract, a twenty five acre tract, and they took one acre out and said, you know, you can have a one acre, you know, and it's it's not even there's no boundaries to it. It's yeah. just mm-hmm. you get a one hundred percent exemption on one acre, and of course, they're going to do the part with the big improvement on it, which is the. 18,000 square foot house, the yeah. boat dock, the mm-hmm. tennis court, mm-hmm. all of all that. All the expensive stuff. All the right. expensive stuff, exactly, is, is exempt. It's 100% exempt. But honestly, to me, the most interesting finding of the Kenneth Copeland property that I found was that that, that 20, the, the remaining 24-acre track, I started looking at it, and he's got 1,500 acres out there on Eagle Mountain Lake. He's got <laughs> the church... Uh, part of the airport, Kenneth Copeland Airport mm-hmm. hangar. Um, there's there's a there's a lot of land that isn't 100% exempt, but it has an ag exemption on it. Mm-hmm. There's oil and gas production out there, but this 25 acre tract 
that is now 24 acres that's not exempt is zoned as vacant commercial property. So I've asked a lot of people, like, what would you pay for 24 acres on Eagle Mountain Lake that's undeveloped? And most people will say in the, you know, millions, millions. like uh-huh. a million, two million, mm-hmm. three million. But it's a price at $125,000. And I, I still don't have an answer exactly. The, the only thing I know is that Kenneth Copeland disputed it and they agreed to that price. But uh-huh. I mean, I don't, even, I don't know why you wouldn't even take that. Go ahead and take that to the appraisal or review board and, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, and, and to court if necessary because yeah. it's got to be 10 times worth that. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that, that's, what, that's what the experts told me right. was yeah. that it should, you know, there, are, there may be a problem with comps mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and the law is not what it should be. But even with that problem, I think I, I think uh, you know if it got into the court context, mm-hmm. that that it would be many multiples of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those were some of the things that we discovered. So not only are we discovering that people are are having you know multi million dollar houses exempt one hundred percent exempt from taxation, even though the code says you're not supposed to use this for private gain. Yeah. And it looks a lot like private gain. We found some of these other anomalies, like, why did you appraise this at $125,000? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and how did it not get questioned, right? Was that like... How, yeah, how yeah. did it not get questioned, Yeah, you know? Because, like, talking about the difference between one and two million is one thing, but the difference between 100000 and a million is a completely different topic. Yeah, so, exactly. Like, that, yeah. It's what, a lot more money. Yeah. There, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, when the Kenneth Copeland piece and really starting to dig into this... What did make you latch on to it? Because when I think about it as a Texan growing up in a small town where church was a part of our lives, yeah. and I, I definitely know, you know, for most people in Texas, church was probably part of childhood, like most likely or some sort of religious gathering. I was fascinated just from a, okay, I know for a fact there's a lot of really wealthy pastors with insane houses. This is interesting. Was it that part? Was it... Like, what was it about this story specifically that piqued your interest to share? Well, it, it, was, it was a little daunting at first because I was like, I don't know anything about this, you know? I don't know anything about these churches and these mm-hmm. religious groups. Um, I mean, I, I have done some stories on, you know, taxes, but um, I, I think what was interesting to me was, like I said, I mean, when I, when I saw the Kenneth Copeland property and, and realized that you have these multi-million dollar houses um, that are paying zero taxes. And these people are really living, you know, like we, we found one in Houston. They got three hot tubs, fountains, tennis court, swimming pool, you know. It's like, a country club. Yeah, really, <laughs> really nice. And, mm-hmm. and, and then when I found some of them that were um, more than, you know, one or two, just right off the... I thought the Kenneth Copeland was more than one acre, but it ended up, it, it was just, that's just the way they describe it. It, it says portion without exemption and por- there's two different tracks. And yeah. It got complicated, but it, it was, it's not above one acre. It's completely legal. Um, but there's some that weren't legal. And I found some that weren't legal really quickly just by going, you know, you know when I first started this, before I asked for a single record, I just went online to the appraisal district's websites and typed in church and then just started looking for residential property. And mm-hmm. I started going, 
why is this residential property that's three acres in Montgomery County that looks... I, I, I type in the address. I don't see any church. There's no sign there from Google Maps. Like, this looks like a house. You know, who, who knows? We don't know yeah. yet until I get the application. But, you know, it looks like a residential property. So how is this? And so what, for me, that I was hooked at that point. Yeah, you know, right. once I Because it was like, okay, you got three hot tubs, uh, uh, you know, or in, in Kenneth Copeland's case, access to a landing strip and yeah. boat dock with three slips and covered boat dock and all of this stuff, I was like, I think people will find it. People who are working every day really hard to pay their property taxes Mm -hmm. will find it interesting that someone who is living in the lap of luxury Mm -hmm. is paying zero in taxes. And look, property taxes are a huge issue, and it cuts across all demographics and political... Mm -hmm leanings you know especially in a state like texas where we don't have the state income tax that's kind of one of the great equalizers absolutely absolutely and 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 that that to me is is one of the rationales that we at the houston chronicle have spent so much time looking at the property tax and looking at where i mean that's why we call it unfair burden because Mm -hmm. the way property taxes work it's it really is pretty much a zero sum game. Yeah. It's like when you, if you get an exemption, it's coming out of everyone else's pocket. It's like someone else is paying it. Right. right. Correct. And did y'all find sort of related to the story? Did y'all find that there was any specific group that that burden shifts to pretty clearly? Or is it just in general, everyone who's not exempt is taking on the burden? Well, it, it does. I mean, the, Technically speaking, it does just kind of go back, you know, yeah. it, 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 it hits everyone else. But really what, what ends up happening is is that people who are wealthy mm-hmm. hire someone to go in and dispute their taxes. Yeah. People, the big companies do it. And, and, and companies also do these what they're called equity. They're, they're, it's very common for them to do what's called an equity appeal mm-hmm. where basically if uh, – the, and we don't have sales price disclosure in yeah. Texas either, which is another thing. I, I <laughs> at some point want to do a story on that because it's we're, we're we may be the only state left. There are very few states that don't have sales price disclosure, mm-hmm, mandatory mm-hmm. sales price disclosure. So a district can't go in and go, well, you know, you sold it for this right. amount, or you mm-hmm. bought it for this amount, or this pro- we know exactly how much the, this this property sold for next to you. It's like no. What you there's kind of a, a little bit of a race to the bottom on mm-hmm. that, and so mm-hmm. the big companies are, are, are get protected, um, wealthy people get protected. Um, you know, if 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 you just happen to really be a stickler and you're really <laughs> you know going to go down and dispute it, and you don't want to hire anybody to do it or, or give up any, a lot of times that you know you can you can hire these people and they do it just on the condition that if they get any money back for you, they share that money with you, right? Yeah. But so what ends up happening? Well, the average person who doesn't dispute it mm-hmm. and who's too busy working every mm-hmm. day, that's who ends up yeah. paying it. Yeah. You know, and, and that's that's something that we've talked about at the Chronicle. Um, we spent the, these last three installments of Unfair Burden were all about um, the, you know, the burden shifting and it was all about afflicting the comfortable, mm-hmm. afflicting the comfortable businesses, afflicting the comfortable religious organizations. And we've talked about, do we need to comfort the afflicted a little bit? Do we yeah. need to spend some time, some of our bandwidth, 
looking at who's picking this up, you know, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be concentrated um, in communities of color. It's mm-hmm. going to be, you know, it's uh, shifting the burden to people who can least afford it. And, yeah. you know, so we we do want to look at that in some form and we're, we're trying to figure out the best way in on mm-hmm. that. So if anybody listening out there, you know, knows how we can do that, we're all ears. Just going to reiterate yeah. that if anyone yeah. listening right Anybody now listening. knows how we can distill that into information, Texas Pod mm-hmm. at by J. Root on Twitter. So mm-hmm. definitely that. I'm also curious, were any church leaders that you looked into or any churches or religious organizations that you reported on willing to talk to you or willing to share info? Not much. It was very, very rare that mm-hmm. we got anyone to deal with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, in, in one case, um, the the day two story, mm-hmm. um, we led with um, a church called River of God mm-hmm. in Montgomery County. And I went to the service and talked to um, the happy pastor's wife. That's the way she's described. Um, Tammy mm-hmm. Priest. Um, ben Priest is the is the pastor, and and I sent them repeated emails and tried. Mm-hmm. I want to get their side of it, yeah. and mm-hmm. we you know got skunked on that one. Didn't get any any. Uh, they, they at one point I think I got one email back that said, "Look, it's all you know. You feel free to look at the public records, but that's all you know. That's sure, all. That's yeah, all you're That's all, that's all they'll yeah. give you. Yeah, that. right. Um, now I will say this: Highland Park Presbyterian church which got its own story because they have the most parsonages of they had 11 parsonages at the beginning of last year mm-hmm. um, which to me that the the biggest surprise I think was that story mm-hmm. um, that was the day three story mm-hmm. and um, they they were pretty they were fairly open with me and really? they dealt with me they answered a lot of my questions um, they ended up hiring somebody just to deal with us mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and so um, you know, it, it, because, you know, it, it wasn't for them, you know, they, I'm sure they would have rather the story just go away, but, mm-hmm. um, they knew it, I, I wasn't going to go away. And so I really applauded them for their transparency. And also they caught one of their own mistakes where basically what they had, and this is something that I caught, but they had actually caught it before I called them where they had one pastor, that had justified two different exemptions and they, they caught it and were in the process of having it removed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there was another one that I caught that was vacant and they said, you're right, it's vacant. We're going to, we're going to alert the appraisal district. And so, um, after my report, because of my reporting, one of the houses came off the rolls and concurrent with my reporting, they discovered it. We sort of discovered it at the same time, mm-hmm. where I was like, wait a second, this is the same guy, but it's two different addresses. Yeah. And that's $25,000 per house, based mm-hmm. on, you know, basically yeah. 25 to 35, depending mm-hmm. on what value you use. Because yeah. one of the things that we discovered, all our values are low mm-hmm. because um, they, uh, an appraisal district, once they put a value on uh, a totally exempt property, they, they typically don't mess with it again mm-hmm. because they don't get any money out of it, yeah. right? There's right. no reason to. But I think there is a good reason, which is I, I think the reason is we need to know. Yeah, We need to have the data. The data is terrible. Mm-hmm. We're not even asking. You can't go to the state comptroller 
and say, hey, how much uh, in total religious property is out there? And they mm-hmm. can't tell they you. Can't tell yeah. They can't well, if they you, did, the number would be off in a way, right? Yeah. Because some and stuff would be was off because ten it years would, ago. It would be lower, exactly. Yeah. Um, but but you would you know we 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 definitely need to have better mm-hmm. yeah data, and, better yeah. accountability. I really do believe. I know it's it's trite, but sunlight is the best disinfectant. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really think when you put stuff out there and it's it you know people can look at it then they know what the problem is, yeah. you know? Now, I, I do have the question of just, like, exploring this a little bit. Somebody once told me, whenever they told me, don't assign malice what you can assign, stupidity or laziness. In a lot of these cases, like that one, is it just one of those kind of administrative oversights? You know, the people working on this don't really care. They're not looking at it that way. Or is it purposeful... I can keep more money if I don't disclose this. You mean from the church's perspective? From the perspective? church's perspective. Um, or even, you know, the, the comptroller or any of these. You know, I, I mean, I really don't think that... I, I, I didn't see any evidence that churches were doing anything other than, um, you know, what they're entitled to, and they're entitled mm-hmm. to a lot. I mean, yeah. that was what one of the, the Nueces County uh, chief appraiser told us I can't remember how he put it, but he like, you know, they get three square meals plus dessert. You know, the churches mm-hmm. basically get a lot more. The, 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 the code, the tax code, is more generous to religious organizations than to any other mm-hmm. group. And I think I would say after having looked at this that that's probably, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't dispute that. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think they deserve it? I mean, I think that's a debate that... Um, I mean, who am I to say? I mean, sure. the, 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 the Constitution allows it. It doesn't say you have to do it. It just says you can do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the code empowers it. Mm-hmm. I do find a problem in the code, mm-hmm. a big problem, which, le- which leads to the examples like Highland Park Presbyterian. I mean, think about this for a second. The owner of the Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones, lives in Highland Park. Mm-hmm. It's one of the nicest... Uh, neighborhoods in the country. It's it's has has been described at various times as the wealthiest zip code in Texas. I think there are other others that may have sure. moved up yeah. or down or whatever. But it's a very yeah. wealthy. Midland probably gets really amped up when they hear that. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's a yeah. very very nice area, right? And when I first found, I, I you know, so we, we we sorted these databases, right? And we're starting looking at it, and I'm like, I see all these houses, and I and then then I looked, I just Googled it. And I found a newsletter that mentioned that they were rent houses. And so I, I, I sort of wasn't really thinking all that clearly. And I, and I had so many other properties that I was mm-hmm. looking at. And I, was, I had gone up to Dallas, and I was sort of on the tail end of it. And I was like, you know, I need to go back and look at Highland Park to see if I understand this correctly. Because I had in my mind, there's no way that, that, any, that one church has this many parsonages. Right. There's got to be something where they're just <laughs> using that. It's right next to the church. It's probably just storage or there's something, whatever. It's like, no, they're all parsonages. So, and, and then I also found that, like, we only looked at residential property and one of them is zoned commercial, so I missed one, you know, because oh, wow. of that. Mm-hmm. There was another one that was being used as a parsonage but was actually categorized as uh, a place of worship. And so mm-hmm. there were two that I missed, 
because of that and write it. So, so it was like one of these things I, I started digging in deeper and I started getting, it was like, Oh my God, like, wow, 11. And that led me to, to look at the code and see, well, is there any limit on how many parsonages you can have? Because we've got this one acre limit. It would seem like mm-hmm. if you can have as many as you want, that that would sort of defeat the whole right, limit, limit, the whole yeah. idea of a limit, right? Yeah. Because there wouldn't be a limit in right. that you case. Right, you say, well, this is all parsonage. Right, and so so the under the code and the way the code is being interpreted by every single appraisal district that I was able to talk to and ask this of, not a mm-hmm. single person said there's any limit on the number of parsonages that you can have as long as each of them are one acre or less. There is a one acre limit. Now, this is where I think that the code may be unconstitutional. I think if somebody were to fight this and say, no, you you can have, sure, you can have four, you can have five, but not if they add up collectively Mm -hmm. to more than one acre. And the reason I say that is because I found a 1956 AG opinion in which this came to uh, a head mm-hmm. in, uh, when, when someone asked for an AG's opinion and said, can, can we have more than one parsonage? And the AG at the time was uh, Shepard, Ben Shepard, I think was his name, John, mm-hmm. ben, John Shepard, John Ben Shepard. And he ruled that, yes, you can have more than one parsonages, provided that they don't collectively add up to more than one acre but that has never been tested yeah Mm -hmm. that's never been tested Mm -hmm. so if someone were to sue over that and it actually got into the court system the court would have to look at the constitutional amendment and see what it means because if you look at the constitutional amendment you might come away with one impression you might come away with the impression that you can't have more than one but if you look at the code it says for each residence yeah and so the code the code can't go past what the constitution says so if it ever mm-hmm. came to a, a, a fight that, that that wound up in a court of law it could get overturned mm-hmm. the, these multiple parsonages in event in in situations when they do add up to more than one acre and in the case of Highland Park Presbyterian, there are they they do add up to more than one yeah, acre collectively because sure. there's so many of them. Yeah, so I was gonna say after, quarter, after five, like a quarter probably, acre each. Yeah, and, you know, you're you, talking about like a high rise, then I don't. Yeah, yeah, right. Dang, and what? In your opinion, I know that you're incredible, inte- integral journalist, but in your opinion, um, what do you believe that these churches had to hide as far as if they didn't answer you or if they avoided your questions, just in your experience and in your opinion, what were they sidestepping? I think just, I don't know, maybe, I mean, one of the things that I think has happened in the last several years, it's, it's, it's just gotten more this way is that people really don't feel like they have to deal with the media anymore. They just, Mm -hmm. because we're fake and, you know, um, they don't. Nobody trusts us, and I, I think it's we're, we're it's very con, it, it's easy and convenient. I think is the most uh, the the best explanation I can come up with to to, to just ignore us, mm-hmm. um, which I I think is unfortunate. Um, but you know that's just the way of the world. Um, mm-hmm. 
I mean, you know, to get on my high horse for just a couple of minutes. <laughs> we have a soapbox. It, yeah. <laughs> it, it bothers me a lot that companies like Facebook, Google, um, and Twitter um, are immune from liability under Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act and can't be held liable for third-party content, so they, so to speak, mm-hmm. even though these algorithms push it out to mm-hmm. everyone, right? right? And they make so much money off of it. Mm-hmm. And we're, we don't have that provision. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't want to live under that provision any, anyway. I mm-hmm. want to be fact-checked. Yeah. I mean, I engage. I, I can tell you I spent, I can't tell you how much time I spent yeah. actually <laughs> fact-checking this. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, we have to. We This got lawyered. Every single story... Mm-hmm. A lawyer looked at it because yeah. we because they don't want to get sued and I don't want to get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I, I think as reporters we should we should. You, th- this is not sort of what you get from Twitter and Facebook, but we should be humble. We should have mm-hmm. humility and realize mm-hmm. that we can make mistakes and we should do everything we can to avoid making mistakes. I mean, yeah. nothing ruins wow. my day worse than an error. I absolutely detest making an error. Mm-hmm. I really, mm-hmm. really do. And so, you know, I I really spend a lot of time trying to be accurate, trying to get to hear from everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, I hate it when people go dark on me. I mean, the, the, the Kenneth Copeland folks went dark on me for the most part, and I did everything I could to get something from them. I sent them mm-hmm. certified letters to their, I mean, mail, you know, $50 worth of overnight mail. Um, I sent um, emails, calls, you know, and finally I got, I fell onto a spokesman who gave me a statement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I felt good about that because like, you know, get your side out there. Yeah, for sure. Right. This is going to be written about. Right. We'll have a statement on record. Exactly. Well, and it's, and it's unfortunate because if, if they were to take the time to look up any of your work, they would see that you you tell the story, not your story. Like, you do such a superb job through all the work that I've looked at of yours of telling the story, not mm-hmm. your side of the story. It's, it's very comprehensive and gives people the chance to give their side of it as well. So. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I do think that that, that it's common in, in, you know, I know a lot of people like to, make fun of the lane stream media and all of that. But, <laughs> you know, the, the people that I work with, Eric Dexheimer and Stephanie Lamb, I mean, we're just as conscientious mm-hmm. and when we were all conscientious and we, Eric and I, you know, I have this, this um, process that I use that I think is really good. I would strongly recommend reporters to do this. I learned this from other reporters is particularly if you, if you can do it with your editor or you can do it with your, you know, in my case with people that were, that I shared a byline with, you read a you read a paragraph and then I read a paragraph and it's mm-hmm. like is that all true you know yeah and when you read it out loud I don't know there's some magic that comes mm-hmm. with that they're mm-hmm. like wait wait a minute you know I don't know how where did I get that and yeah. then you go back and look and here's the document you mm-hmm. know I mean I could show you these Google Docs that are just footnoted <laughs> up and yeah the lawyers looked yeah. at it the lawyer mm-hmm. in in one case asked for my tape you know mm-hmm. like you saying this are you sure they said this I'm like hey take mm-hmm. please listen to it make sure mm-hmm. I got it right. I want another pair of ears and pair of Mm -hmm. eyes on it. Absolutely. That's so important. And I think it's nice to hear somebody in the field say that, Uh, you know, 
just because we're bombarded from all sides about this and that, and this is fake, and this is incredible. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to hear that there are still institutions that take all of that into account. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's just really reassuring. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, Bob Woodward says yeah. that what we should do, and I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of his, mm-hmm. and um, uh, he says we should, you know, to try to get the most obtainable version of the truth. And I, mm-hmm. I really really strongly adhere to that um Mm -hmm. like and and one of my mantras is never stop reporting Mm -hmm. um you should be reporting even during the fact-checking process the fact-checking process is actually a good time to get more information because Mm -hmm. i i tell people you know i'm going to tell you what i have what you're saying what i'm saying about you i'm going to tell you beforehand i don't share the story but i do everything but yeah i send like what the, i think ProPublica calls it a no surprise letter like mm-hmm. you're not going to be surprised i promise you there is not a single person that i wrote about that had if, if they're surprised they don't have a good excuse for it yeah um my the my sort of one of the things that i think about is like if somebody like just took me to task over social media or, you know, made a critical complaint about something, what would I say? Mm -hmm. And I would say, I tried to, my damnedest to get a response. And here are my emails showing you Mm -hmm. that I tried, you know, I, I, I want to always be in that position that if I do, God forbid, make Mm -hmm. a mistake on something, um, that, um, it wasn't because I was careless. Yeah. You know, I, I don't ever want to be careless. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious about throughout the writing process or even the fact, just at any point in this process, did you and your team experience any opposition internally as far as any, and I'm asking this as a Christian who's very mm-hmm. involved in the church I go to and in that mm-hmm. community and loves the church dearly, but would not be surprised if you came up against any Christian opposition. So as this story was going to be printed, did y'all come across? Not, not internally, not, okay. not inside the Houston Chronicle. Everyone was totally on board with it. I mean, right. there, there was a, a lot of conversations about, you know, making sure we're fair. Like one of the things mm-hmm. that kept coming up is when I would tell people what I was doing, they're like, what, tell me about Joel Osteen's <laughs> parsonage. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, he doesn't have one. Right. He huh. he doesn't have one. He sure pays he his taxes. Yeah. He pays something like yeah. It's, it's that's what all that know, money in the bathroom was for. That's his tax over two hundred thousand yeah. dollars that he pays in in taxes. Mm-hmm. Um. And but we wanted to make sure we had that right. And mm-hmm. and I was very insistent. I was like, look, people really want to know about Joel Osteen. Okay, <laughs> and, and rightly so. I mean, he's yeah. you know been, yeah. he's very successful at what he does. Mm-hmm. He's and in Houston, he's huge in yeah, Houston. He's huge internationally, but he's really big in Houston. Mm-hmm. He's a huge just public figure, right? Yeah. And um, so we, I, I said, look, let's pull out all the stops. Like mm-hmm. we, we can't, we can't just go. We didn't find one, and, yeah. and and we can't even just call the appraisal district and say, you're sure you don't have one for him, right? Because what if he has one in another county and we mm-hmm. miss that county, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we had to get through to Joel Osteen's people, and it's not always easy to make sure that they got the <laughs> message. And yeah. so we worked our sources. We got a good number for, I think it was his brother-in-law. I didn't make the call. It was Eric Dexheimer who did, but I believe it's the brother-in-law who said, no, he really, he, he feels strong that he should pay his taxes, and that's mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what he does, and all the money that you know, you know that that was their answer, and we got that in there. Mm-hmm. And 
even though we had that in there, I still had people that on Twitter that were like going, yeah, there goes Joel Austin once again, gaming the system. And it's like, did you read the story? (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the answer, right? It's like they didn't. didn't. (laughs) Gaming the system, paying his taxes. Like, you know, if you want to game the system, that's the way to do it. Yeah. I'm curious, another curious question just on the whole series as far as, because am I wrong when I say the reason y'all pursued this whole series was just to show the average person, mm-hmm. hey, there's people that are systematically putting the burden of taxes on you when they have the ability or the capacity or the means to take on the burden themselves. Would you want to see it where the average person gets access to the same exemptions or where the top 1% or the, the churches get brought down to the average person's level? Just... Yeah, well, you know, as I noted, I mean, I, I feel like it's it's very important for me. Here's here's my theory on, on reporters expressing opinions. <laughs> reporters can have opinions. Mm-hmm. I have opinions. I've got all kind of opinions, but who cares about my opinion, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's honestly, like, who really cares about my opinion? I don't think it's that important, and I think it's I think it is important as reporters to remain publicly objective. And to not, you know, let that influence your work. Here's what I'll say, though, in in a, a sort of in in some kind of answer to your question. I think that if you read these series and you look at what we did, you can see some suggested areas of reform. In fact, we did a story of like potential solutions for mm-hmm. the legislature to consider. Mm-hmm. And one of them is, is to put a value limit on this. Yeah. It's like, and, and some other states have that. I think in Maine, if they have like a $20,000 exemption and that's it, like mm-hmm. for anything, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you get your religious exemption, it's $20,000, kind of like a homestead exemption. You don't get your, you don't get your entire home written. You have an exemption of a certain amount of your home that is, is, is not subject to taxation and you have to pay taxes on the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So one of the suggestions that we got from this, uh, an expert panel that we put together was, yeah, um, have, have a limit on it of, I don't know, take your pick a hundred thousand dollars, $200,000, $500,000, a million. If you put a million dollar exemption on Parsons, there still would be a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> that would be paying a lot yeah. in taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that would seem that seems fair to a lot of people. In fact, yeah. I, I picked a, I picked up on that on Twitter. One of one of the best um, uh, suggestions that I heard was to um, make the limit the average home value. You know, we have there are two hundred and fifty three appraisal districts. Randall and Potter County in the Amarillo area mm-hmm. share an appraisal district. Otherwise, every single county has an appraisal district, right? Mm-hmm. So it would be very easy to pass a law that says the appraisal district at the beginning of every year has to determine what the median home value or average mm-hmm. home value. Take your pick of what, how you want to do this. And that's the exemption you get. If it's three hundred thousand in Austin, it would probably be I don't know what would it be three hundred thousand like, like one point three million probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what would be the median? I don't know what the median home value. I, I, I'm told that there's not a single house in Travis County that's worth worth less than a hundred thousand dollars. That's on their, probably that's true. Probably true. Role. So <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but yeah. I did hear that. Um, but I would I would I would fact check that before I, I yeah. Yeah. before I publish it, but. The bottom line is, you know, real estate in mm-hmm. Travis County is going to be higher than in Hunt County or some yeah, county sure. that you've never heard of, mm-hmm. you know. 
Um, so, um, you know, I mean, I, I still, I mean, I'm a native Texan. I still yeah, come across yeah. kind of like, that's a county? Really? Exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You're like, we have a whole segment that's just like small town. Small town of the week. Yeah. 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 It, uh, man, it gets crazy. It, dude, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. How about, how about pronouncing the small town? We, oh, we found some pretty hard ones. <laughs> my favorite one is Refurio. We used to actually, so in high school we played Refugio, but we were idiots and called it Refugio. Okay. Um, So that's a hard one. Uh, Waxahachie gets pretty hard. hard. Mejia. Mejia. (laughs) Even Bernie on some level is, you you just look at it and you're like, I don't know. Beer, beer, Uh And what about, is there something about this story to you that feels uniquely Texan as far as the the embedded religion piece of it, but also the protection of property piece of it. The privacy element of it. I saw that smile on your face, yeah. so I'm yeah. just going to let you I start mean, talking. <laughs> Kenneth Copeland is such a Texan. He was born mm-hmm. in Lubbock. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he's he got oil production, yeah. a lot of it, mm-hmm. yeah. on his property there and elsewhere, too, I'm sure. I, I You know, um, Kenneth Copeland's a really good story. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think you could just lean in and do a lot of stories about Kenneth Copeland. Yeah. Just watch mm-hmm. what he says and does. And, you know, he's got a, a really devoted following, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he's, he's very good at what he does yeah. and has raised a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I, I don't think we cover these guys enough. I mean, I, after I, I you know, there were a lot of people who read the stories who had, had never heard of Kenneth Copeland. And it's like, mm-hmm. and yet, um, you know, just just go type in his name in YouTube. He's got he's I don't know how many YouTube videos. I, I'd like to know how many YouTube videos he has. It's yeah. unbelievable mm-hmm. how many there are. Oh yeah. And so he's very well known. And I I, I think that we need to pay attention more to um, politically connected, wealthy preachers mm-hmm. and ministers. Um, because they're influential in their communities. I mean, one of the things that I found in Tarrant County, for example, was they didn't have a piece of paper that tied into that property. And uh, again, hmm. there aren't very many uh, rules here, but one of them is that it has to be inhabited by a member of the clergy. Yeah. And so I asked Jeff Law, the chief appraiser in Tarrant County, like, well, who lives there? He said, well, we just assume it's Mr. Copeland. I was like, you're, you're basing... A multi-million-dollar tax exemption on an assumption, mm-hmm. really? Interesting. And he and he was like, you know, good question. We're gonna make him reapply. <laughs> you know, I got a lot of that. Like, yeah. oh, what do we, you know? Right. Oh, good point. Sir. Good point. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna, you yeah. know. And so, I mean, they they don't they they didn't have on the application in in almost every case in Tarrant County. They say who lives there. Mm-hmm. Or who's going to live mm-hmm. there. And if they don't, they would get this follow-up letter from Tarrant County, the appraisal district, saying, who lives there? What's their connection to the church? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How can you justify this? Where's your ordination mm-hmm. paper? Stuff like that to prove that you... But with Copeland, there was none of that. There yeah. wasn't any... You know, and I was like... And, and my question was, well, if you don't know who lives there, then how can you grant a clergy residence exemption? Yeah. And he basically said, good question. I don't know the answer. Fair point, you know? fair point. Fair point. Right, another fair good point. point. <laughs> exactly. We got, we got that in, 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 Denton, in Denton County. Oh, yeah, um, Denton. We, we, Denton County was great because, yeah. I can't think of the guy's name now, but it was like the deputy chief appraiser. 
And he said, oh my God, what have we done? Let me know. We want to fix it. And thank you for calling. And we really like when when people call us and tell us about stuff because we're going to do this fairly. It was like, whoa, this is a breath of fresh air. Right. Um, and and in, in that case, there was one, it was a two and a half acre um, parsonage. And it, and it was written on there, you know, it's 2.5 acres. They filled it in that way. And yeah. yet they still, they mm-hmm. still, and, you know, it was something that had, had been done years ago. And mm-hmm. the, the chief appraiser that had come in was relatively new. And they're like, we're going to fix this. That was, that was one that was interesting because we, we flew a drone on that one and mm-hmm. we got really harassed by a neighbor who was very, very upset. Really? Extremely upset. Yeah. For just the drone or even the idea that y'all were trying to report? It was kind of all of the, it. Just you know, and, 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 and it was very, very hostile. It was an extremely hostile encounter. Like They said they were going to call the cops. He, he later called my editor and said he did call the cops and that we fled before the cops got there. But I, I asked him, mm-hmm. I said, do you want me to stay and talk to the cops? I'd be happy to I, mm-hmm. tell them what I'm doing. You mm-hmm. know, we're totally transparent about this. I'm happy to talk to him. And he goes, I want you to get your ass out of here. Wow. So, so I was right. like, okay, yeah. we're leaving. You yeah. know, we, we got, we, yeah. our work is done. We're mm-hmm. leaving. And were so. you like, are you the worship pastor? Or? <laughs> well, he, he was, uh, Probably youth he was a neighbor who, and, and he said that he helped watch the property over mm-hmm. there. And he asked me why I was so interested. I said, well, it's 2.5 acres and we're, we're, we're visiting as many of these, above one acre properties to see what we can find, you mm-hmm. know. Interestingly enough, um, you didn't ask, but uh, uh, people have highlighted some that we missed. And one... Really? I'm sure they have, yeah. Yeah, one in, 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 a, in, a, in a county near Houston that is really, uh, is way bigger. It's like three and a half acres, I think. It's uh, almost two million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, you know, I, I'm so I'm looking at I'm looking to see to make sure that it is a parsonage. I haven't. Yeah. The, the only thing I know at this point is that they don't have an application on file. Was it scanned and the physical copy was not in the file? That's all I know at this point. Wow. So that's the kind of stuff that you find. You're like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. This is a, you know, an exemption on a million dollar uh, total exemption. It, it it depends a little bit on where you live because each taxing jurisdiction is different. But the rule of thumb for me is a million dollars is about twenty five thousand dollars a year, more or less. Yeah. In taxes, okay. Mm-hmm. So at two million, that would be fifty thousand dollars, and it's like you're you know that could hire a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so you're like okay. You 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 base this exemption that goes back to 1997, and you don't have an application, and yeah. how do you don't know who's living there? Mm-hmm. I mean, my one of my biggest takeaways from this was you know we we have a lot of clamoring uh, from some people to to have an income tax, and maybe that's the best way to go. You know, mm-hmm. I don't I'm not expressing an opinion on it one way or the other, mm-hmm. but before we do that. We might want to look at the property tax and see: is there are there some exemptions that should never have been known there in the first place? Mm-hmm. And what's what is a reasonable exemption to give? Should if you know the Kenneth Copeland property is somewhere is worth somewhere between seven and eleven million dollars, mm-hmm. let's say, 
you know, is that how about five million or three million or two million or one million? What's the right number? Yeah. To to say this is what we think the founding fathers would have wanted. You yeah. Know? Sure. Or this is what we want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just what's fair, right? Because even to your yeah fifty thousand and higher teacher, there's a reality that the past the pastor or the the clergy person living in a two million dollar home, tax free, exempt from that can afford $50,000 in taxes, whereas the teacher who lives in a normal house with a $50,000 salary, that they tax burden of... buy a house. Yeah, right, like right. that tax burden of 5 to 10% is a yeah. lot harder. Right. Um, so that, that was another thing that I took away from reading the stories was just the imbalance of these people who can afford the taxes aren't paying it, and these people who barely can have to. Right. Um, which is just not cool. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, like, just just some common sense reforms would bring a lot of money to the table in that way, you know. And this is kind of my last question on this because I want to talk about the border coverage you've done as well. Um, Do you believe that there will be any law passed or amendment made in? In the tax exemptions that parsonages have, based on the story y'all did, just looking down the pike at the next even four years. Well, I do think that the legislature will take a look at exemptions in the next legislative session, in part because, frankly, because of the coverage that we've done at the Chronicle, not only on parsonages, but even more pointedly, frankly, in terms of legislative impact on the on the three thirteen agreements, which mm-hmm. cost school districts a lot of money. I mean, it costs the state billions mm-hmm. a year. Um, it's more money than than the parsonage exemptions for sure. Um, I think the parsonage thing is more of a is is much more of a fairness issue. I mean, the money is the money. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's real money when you're talking about Highland Park Presbyterian, for example. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars every year mm-hmm. that isn't going into school districts, isn't going into uh, police and fire, roads, and all of that. Um, but I think that um, uh, I I know that uh, Senator Paul Betancourt is interested in looking at exemptions. Um, I talked to another Senator who expressed some interest at one point in maybe limiting the Parsons exemption, whether they actually carry through on that. I really Mm -hmm. don't know. Yeah. Um, but I do think the religious part of it is, is a hot potato. Yeah. And I think there will be some reluctance to stir that up. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, Democrats will be reluctant because they don't want to be seen as, anti-religion mm-hmm. and Republicans uh, are close to a lot of these mm-hmm. individual to mm-hmm. these churches that, that, that end up being part of their voting base. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, you know, if, if you don't mind, I also want to just kind of ask about you and you are uh, an alma mater. You went to UT as did I, but you Ooh. didn't go Aggie oh, you're here. an ag. <laughs> we don't think about it well. very much. Uh, you did not go specifically for journalism, is that correct? No, yeah, no, you, I you, didn't. You walked into a newspaper office, kind of the your last year, and right. and found your crew, right? Which I find fascinating. Um, uh-huh. So your journey into investigative journalism was not something that you sought at first. So as you fell into it, 
what was it that drew you in and ultimately, you know, led you to become a multi, you know, you've won awards, you are, you've written amazing pieces and done some really cool documentaries. So I'm just curious, what about it drives you? Um, I mean, it, it, it's so, I'm such a, to me, journalism is such a good fit for me, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I literally did not know it until my senior year of college and I always kind of liked to write and my mom always said, you know, you should write, you should be a writer or whatever, you know, but she, she, she was good at actually identifying people's strengths. Yeah. Doesn't it um, suck when moms are like good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's um, right. when they're right. <laughs> when they're right. Um, but it, it really was like, uh, when I, when I, I decided to go try out for a columnist writing job at the Daily Texan and it really was, I, I walked down into that basement office and it was like falling onto the island of misfit toys, you know? <laughs> I was like, these are my people, like, they're Where broken they too, you know? <laughs> they're like weirdos and yeah. nerds and sitting mm-hmm. around talking about public policy and, um, you know, we, we would just, we would sit around and talk about politics and government and what was wrong with everything? And I was like, my God, I want to do this forever, you yeah. know? And so that that's what, you know, and I never have looked back. I mean, the, the funny thing is, is that I think almost everybody that was in that room went on to do something else eventually. A lot yeah. of them started out as reporters. A lot, most of them were, were in journalism school. I, I still have never taken a journalism class, right? And um, I was an economics major only because... I started out, you know, when you're from a, a town like Liberty, Texas, mm-hmm. you basically have like two paths. It's like maybe three, doctor, lawyer, or business. That's it. There is mm-hmm. nothing else, yeah. right? And so, you know, I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor or a lawyer, so I was like, I'm going to go do business, right? <laughs> and then I landed, <laughs> in, an account- I landed in an accounting class. I was right. like... If this is what it is, I want out. And at that point, I just, it was like economics was, Mm -hmm. I'd already taken calculus and I was like, you had to take calculus to do economics, but economics was liberal arts. And so with just one extra semester, I could get out and get a degree, you know? And so that, that's, that's why I was an economics major. No other reason than that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I, I, you know, I wanted to do like international business because I was, I was sort of into languages. I, I, yeah. I had a little knack for languages. Mm-hmm. And my Spanish teacher said, you, you know, you're good at this. You should go, uh, you should become a, a language professor. And I was like, I never wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Language to me was always a means to an end. Sure. You know, yeah. like use a tool to understand a culture, understand film, understand comedy, whatever yeah. it is you were yeah. trying to understand about some other culture. Language was a good way to do that. Um, and so, you know, then I graduated and I was like, mm, what am I, what am I going to do? And <laughs> I did like an internship at what was then called the McNeil, the McNeil Lair news hour, which mm-hmm. ended up just becoming the news hour. And, um, but then when I got out of that, it was like the gig is up. And so I ended up at this Belgian chemical company, Solvay America in Houston and God love them for giving me a job. It was not a good fit. <laughs> I was a personnel assistant because I speak French. Okay. And How many well, languages do you speak? I speak French and Spanish okay. and, and, and hobble along in English. <laughs> um, but my, I'm, I'm married to a French woman and, okay. um, 
but so I, I got this job because I spoke French and I hated it. I really uh-huh. was not, you know, it was not my thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I was looking for an exit strategy and I took a two week internship at the Houston Post and it, it eventually turned into a job. It didn't write at first. I ended up having to be the newsroom secretary for a little while. Like when the internship was over, they're like, thanks, bye. And like, oh my God, what have I done? I quit this job and yeah, now like man. I don't have anything. What but am then I they, supposed to do? I know. Then they, then they <laughs> called me back and said, um, I mean, I, I just remember like, you know, out on the balcony smoking. And, and, and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, said the Houston Post is calling, you know, and like I went in and they're like, hey, listen, the newsroom secretary has suddenly taken medical leave. Do you want to be the newsroom secretary? You know, I don't, I can't Mm -hmm. promise you'll write anything, but you probably will. And, um, one of my mentors said, take it, you know, they're always short of people. And the next thing you know, I'm like doing explosions and (laughs) crazy stuff in Houston. Yeah. That's wild. And what kind of between like daily texting and when you become secretary of the post and eventually start writing, what were some of the issues you were drawn to? You know, you talk about being in that basement and talking yeah. about things you, that you disagreed with or things like that. So what were some of the I, I issues? Was all, I was always really interested in, in politics. It, and at one time I wanted to run for office. I, you know, after, after I gave up on the priesthood, um, I thought, you know, maybe I should run for office yeah. and, and um, price Daniel the former governor, uh, AG on the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. was a family friend. Okay. Um, and my dad said, go talk to him. And I met him at the Breckenridge. He had, they had a condo in the Breckenridge over at, like, it, what's that, like, MLK and Guadalupe or okay. Lamarca, some over, yeah. somewhere mm-hmm. over there. I remember going in there and meeting him, and I was super disappointed because he was like, I just can't recommend it. He was wow, like, he's wow. Like, he's like, it's, it's so, it's terrible now. And it's, I can't imagine what he would say now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but he was, he was like, it's just, you know, um, you have to sell your soul, you know, mm-hmm. don't do it. And oh I was kind of like, I thought he was going to recommend I go talk to somebody else. Sure. He really just spent the entire time trying to talk me out of it. And he wow. pretty much did. Yeah. Um, uh, but good for him. Yeah. Right. Honestly, yeah. Like, yeah, good for him. Yeah. <laughs> but I was, I was always, I still was interested in politics and I realized yeah. that, Hey, this is a good way to be involved in politics, but then you don't get fired when <laughs> your candidate Nobody has to vote for you too. You uh, can yeah, just exactly. cover what you want. No one yeah. fires, no yeah. one votes for you or votes you out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, I'll probably make less money because I mean I think that sure. a, a lot of people who go into politics end up then going into lobbying or yeah. you know, they end speeches, up, and yeah, those types of trading things. Trading stocks with insider information. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you need to be wealthy or indicted or yeah, something. I don't something know, like but, that. If you're wealthy but, and you get indicted, it doesn't seem that bad. You get know, invited yeah. to islands. But right. Houston City Hall by was the party people. By the party people. Houston City Hall was my first Real, I I did do higher ed for like six months, but mm-hmm. um, Houston City Hall was my first real like beat where like yeah. it it measures up to the description of being a beat, and it was it was really uh, that's where I learned how really? to be a reporter. Yeah, there okay. was a, yeah. there was my I, I was teamed up with a guy named Scott Harper who unfortunately died a few years ago uh, from pancreatic cancer, but he told me, how, he, he, he said these words to me, if you can come up with your own ideas, 
you can pretty much write your own ticket and have a lot of freedom um, because editors have terrible ideas <laughs> and like they're desperate for your yeah. ideas. Mm-hmm. And he would show me, you know, back it was, this was way before the internet. He would circle, he would like read the paper, he would circle. It's like, wouldn't you like to know more about this? Like, what's this paragraph all about? Like, mm-hmm. what? Like, you know, file an open records request or ask, you know, go, go talk to people. And he was really good. He told me how to make sources. Like, yeah. he was like the secretaries, you know, the, yeah. the assistants, like those people, like, you know, those people can give you information. Right. Yeah. So he, he really taught me how to be a reporter in many ways. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I learned from other, uh, other people in the Houston Post newsroom, Mary Flood, a guy named Steve Olison. Those were my journalism teachers. You yeah. Know? Um, I remember you one. You learned th- by doing it. Yeah, I <laughs> did. The funny thing is, is I now work for the Houston Chronicle, which is in the building that the Houston Post used to be in. Really? So it's full circle. Back, back to the go. future. Yeah. It's full circle. Exactly. But I remember uh, one time Steve Olison, he was, he was on the city, he was playing city editor. You know, I think he was assistant city editor or something. I was, you know, I had known him as a reporter and he was, he assigned me to something. I said, can you assign me? Somebody said, "Hell yeah, I'm the editor." You know, it's, uh, that's awesome. So that's you know, it, it was it was really. I, I I used to walk out of that Houston Post building and stand in, in in the parking lot and just pinch myself. I was like, I can't believe they're paying me to do this. That's know? awesome. I just loved it, that's and I still awesome. love it. Well, and there seems to be in your business a lot of tracking down information and verifying it, which. I could be totally off base here, but it seems like a good way to stay very busy. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways these are, this is the best time and the worst time to be in the objective mainstream media business. Mm-hmm. It's the best time because who wants to be involved in all of this division and right um, this horrible partisans? Like, I, I, I'm really glad I'm not doing the day-to-day political stuff. Yeah. I don't think I... I think I picked the right time to get out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it in, in one way, it's the worst time, which is that it's really the divisive stuff that sells. Right. And, and that, that, that gets back a little bit to the Section 230 thing, which is that the divisive content is, is selling. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 they sucked up all the advertising dollars. Yeah. And it's also... Um, it's what really drives eyeballs, you know, Mm -hmm. people are attracted to that. And so when you, and and this is, this is a, a, in some ways a good segue into immigration and border coverage. It's like, if you, if you play it down the middle, you're not going to get as much viewership Mm -hmm. as if you just take one side and beat the drum, you know, which is true on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that I, one of the criticisms that I got, a very consistent criticism that I got on Twitter after the Parsonage story is like, so what? You need to focus on X. And, you know, from the left, it was, you need to focus on January 6th. That's all that matters. Spend all your time on that. Um, and from the right, it was, what about Obama? And what about <laughs> Clinton? And what? About, and I'm like, uh, yeah. you know, what about him? I don't. I don't cover no, national not, politics. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, yeah. wrong right. section, dude. I know. Like, I don't know. I'm not. You know. I know exactly. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I'm. I'm just like. But that's what really. That, that's why I. I. I was proud of this one mm-hmm. because, 
it was objective, fact check. We gave everybody both, you know, everybody had their chance to say whatever. And it still generated a lot of attention. It was one of the most read on our site. People mm-hmm. spent a long time with it. So I'm really, really happy about how it turned That's out. Awesome. It was a lot of work. I'm not going to lie. There were a couple of times toward the end where I wanted to throw my computer out the window. <laughs> sure, yeah. Another fact check. Yeah. Like, and when I, when I was, when, when I had kind of finished with the reporting and was looking at the, the writing and the fact checking, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be so much work. And yeah. it was mm-hmm. a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. But I really feel good about it. Yeah. Well, I think that just goes into quality reporting. Even we had a Jason Stanford on a couple mm-hmm. months ago, uh, forget the Alamo, one of the mm-hmm. authors. And he talks about, I think he said point blank. I'm so tired of talking about not talking about the Alamo, but like so much work went into making sure everything was fat checked. Uh-huh. Every, everything is more down the middle than it is beating the drum on either side. Right. As you said. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I know that was probably exhausting, but also I commend you for, doing the hard work because it created an excellent story that's worth reading. On something you said earlier that really is still sticking with me is you said, I don't think my opinion should matter in journalism. Like it's just about, I took that to mean that's just about the facts as they are. And I just, it's so refreshing to hear that, but it must be very difficult when you see the opposite getting all the traction. You know, it is a little. It is a little frustrating. Um, it, it doesn't really. That's that's why I say, in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's sad that it's not more. Um, that people aren't eating their vegetables more. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. just, it's all it's all steak and dessert. Sure. You know? I mean, are you kidding me? It's crack cocaine, dude. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. There's, there's no steak. There's yeah, no, there's there's nothing healthy. Yeah, um, it's, it's not substantial. Ha, has it? Well, yeah, I want to get to immigration and the border yeah. for sure. But I'm curious, just as a journalist, you know, the climate of everything, pointing out all the ad dollars are being sucked up by super extreme rhetoric on either side. Has that made it tempting at any point to play that game, or has it been pretty easy to straddle the middle and just write from a factual perspective? And, no, it really hasn't been difficult. I mean, it, it, it hasn't been tempting to go off and be a demagogue or or a sort of um, not very thoughtful pontificator. You know, mm-hmm. I... I I don't think I'll, I I could ever do that. Mm-hmm. Um, could I be in a different space and do um, some of the things that I do now in a different way? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I you know, and I, I've I've I'm, I've always have so many projects. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I'm working on a documentary right now. Another one related to the blackout. <laughs> All right, and I'm working on it with oh, my son, with my son. <laughs> I'm working on it with my son. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, this is his company. Two Perf is the name of his company. Okay. Nice. Shouts out to Perf. Two Perf, and he um, is uh, he's a you know video production. He does video production. He has his own. You know, he started his own company, and so mm-hmm. we decided to do this together. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chronicle said it was fine for me to do it, so yeah. that's why I'm, I'm happy to talk about <laughs> it. And, and I, I wouldn't do it if they weren't yeah. okay with it. But my editor was fine with it, and it's. It's very much like my journalism. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a different medium, and you can do different things with a documentary, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it basically follows one family that just had a horrible result mm-hmm. from the blackout, and you know, lost they lost a loved one, and mm-hmm. and you know, just the TikTok of that is is excruciating to hear. 
And one of the things that I'm experimenting with the with, with it on this is that um, it I, I want to use this song called "I Love You Texas" that a friend of mine wrote, and um, because it's how could this happen in Texas? Mm-hmm. We're like the energy capital, you know. And and right, and, yeah. and and one of the things really stuck with me that one of the family members said of of this loved one they lost their mother. And she said, you know, I'm from Texas, and when I go abroad, people always ask where I'm from, and I'm always proud to say I'm from Texas, but I don't feel that way anymore. Mm -hmm. And it just broke my heart, you Mm -hmm. know? I'm like, I love Texas too, you know? I'm a native Texan. How could we have let this happen? This was really, this was truly a man-made disaster. You know, that's not an opinion. I mean, Mm -hmm. we built this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Grid. It was our system. It was yeah. our system. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, it and so, failed. yeah, it yeah. failed. You know, ha- have y'all connected with uh, Joshua Daniels from UT at all for this have story? Not, no. Okay. He's worried. Okay. Little we'll plug. We'll a few weeks. Uh, well. He was one of the professors that was studying the grid for the okay. past few years. So he was all over oh, okay. the news. The initial blackout, and he's coming on the show for like the one year anniversary to oh, great. talk about it. But I'd love to share. His oh info yeah, I would for definitely sure. want to get that. Heck yeah, yeah. got a source for you. Um, yeah, I want to just sort of chase on these rabbits that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for your time, by the way. Just sure. gotta say that one more time. Um, the border, immigration. What what drove you to the border, literally? Well, I've been doing this for a long time um, in terms of my relationship to Latin America. Um, I have always been fascinated by all things foreign, frankly. Um, you know, uh, married a French woman, spent a lot of time in Latin America. I, um, from, from the very early days, I, even when I was at Houston City Hall, I remember there was a sewer system blast down in Guadalajara. And... Um, I called my editor right after it moved on the wire and he goes, I know why you're calling, get down there. <laughs> and I so that, I got yeah. on the flight and it was, it was still, there was still reports of, I don't know if they they were accurate of explosions when I got there, had to flag down a VW bus to take me to my hotel cause you couldn't get a yeah. vaccine. I just mm-hmm. paid some guy, you know, 20 to bucks you to take me there. Yeah. Um, so I, I've been doing this for, and, and, and when I worked at the Fort Worth Star Telegram, which was a, Knight Ritter and then McClatchy paper, um, they sort of deputized me. And I was going to be Mexico City Bureau Chief. The, the mm-hmm. foreign editor said, you're going to be, they're going to announce this on Monday that you're going to be Mexico City Bureau Chief. And then they, that was right when they started having financial difficulties. Now McClatchy's bank went bankrupt. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, there were obviously were, you know, heavy, heavy financial winds blowing against uh, McClatchy. Um, but um, so I spent a lot of time down there. I was always drawn to it. Um, I just love understanding, you know, other cultures. Mm-hmm. And for me, Mexico is like part of our culture. I mean, it's yeah. definitely part of the Texas culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Especially so, South Texas. Yeah, well. right. I love the valley, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love spending time down there. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the, the, you know, like some of the characters that I have come across that are, you know, the, the, the mixtape with George Strait and then Tejano music, you know, mm-hmm. like I love that, yeah. that mixing, those melding mm-hmm. of, of, mm-hmm. The, of those cultures. Um, and so um, in, in its most recent iteration, um, in 2015, 
Emily Ramshaw, who went off to start the 19th, um, who was the editor at the time of the Texas Tribune, made, said, how would you like it if I made you a full-time investigative reporter? I was like, you know, sure, I'd love that. Yeah. And um, I had always done investigative reporting before that, but this was basically a, a, a chance to get off of the daily stuff altogether and I felt like I had done it long enough. I had sources that I would be able to pull this off. I was always a little nervous of doing that, not only because I was afraid they would cut investigative if if mm-hmm. the board if if um you know the budget started if they started having budgetary problems at any place I worked at. But I felt like 2015 was the right time to do it. My kids were getting older, um, and so. Um, a, a few days later, she said, okay, I'd like, you know, we're going to have a team. I'd like everybody to come back with an idea for an investigative project that an entire team could work on. So it was me, Terry Langford, and I think Morgan Smith had all come up with different ideas, and we went and pitched it in the meeting, and they ended up going with my idea which was not much more complicated than I was like, what the hell am I going to do? And I turn on the television and Donald Trump is announcing for president and put Mexico and the border in his crosshairs. Mm, yeah. I was like, that's it. <laughs> and so I came up with this uh, uh, project that we later called Bordering on Insecurity, mm. um, which was kind of sort of a play on yeah, right. border security. And mm-hmm. it, I, I thought it was a really creative title. I didn't come up with it. I can't remember who did. I think it was Alexa Ura who came up with, who was the one who, you know, we, we were sort of playing around with border security. We didn't want to sure. call it. We, we I still label, I always label everything with three letters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that one was called BSP, the Border Security Project. Okay. And, and, mm-hmm. and we wanted to play with that because that was the terminology that the Republicans, mm-hmm. the Republican leaders of the legislature yeah. all uses. It's all about border security. And so... Um, I was proud of that project too. For a, for an entire year, we looked at um, the border, and we mm-hmm. looked at the issue of uh, immigrants in the jails. Mm-hmm. We looked at the issue of corruption in the border patrol. Mm-hmm. We looked at the issue of the workplace and how. To me, again, this 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 is the one that I, I find so interesting is that we talk about the lawlessness on the border and we certainly could talk, we could spend an sure. entire podcast on this, but one of the <laughs> most lawless... You're, you're coming back, by the yeah, way. <laughs> one of the most lawless yeah. places in America is the Texas workplace. Absolutely. There's no workers' comp is required. Mm-hmm. We're the only state in the United States that does not have mandatory workers' mm-hmm. comp or some equivalent yeah. to that. We're and the only state that does... A lot of things, right? Only yeah. without sales in, in a lot of amazing right, ways, yeah. but mm-hmm. also in a lot of in some ways that maybe we could not questionable go ways. A bit. Correct. And so, in, in your cover in the BSP project and just mm-hmm. your coverage of the border, I'm curious as just a total pedestrian, what is something that I don't know about the border, and what is something that's maybe misunderstood about like border security, border insecurity, just the whole thing? Um, I think to me. And you may already know this, um, but the most interesting thing is that we only talk about supply side, sort mm-hmm. of, you know, we only talk about enforcement. And you can, you can all day long say, I, I, I in, in my, the first documentary I did called Beyond the Wall, mm-hmm. um, 
we we really tied this together, I thought, pretty well, which is basically that there's, don't forget about the demand side, but we, we quoted this professor, a UT professor, who said, you know, it looked, it sounds pretty impressive when you're going, we bought, we busted all this fentanyl, we busted all these drugs, and, and then the next day, same thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're not going to stop it this mm-hmm. way. Not only that, but the hard drugs, the hard drugs, the coke, the meth, the the heroin, those comes though that that product comes across the bridges across the ports of entry, mm-hmm. um, because it's too expensive. the 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 cartels are not going to let someone just go Wander across. Yeah, they're they, not they strapping that to someone's back. <laughs> yeah, no, they're not. They're not. They're 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 putting it in false yeah, compartments yeah, in cars, and then they're getting. Yeah, they're pretty they're sophisticated. People, they're, extremely yeah. sophisticated. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, look at uh, the CIA has it, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the fact book, you know, it, it'll say like Every what time. percentage, what percentage of drugs of the Coke, you know, whatever yeah. comes over the ports of entry is way over 90%, right? Absolutely. And so like you can spend all, you know, and, and if you have a wall, it's still, a wall is well, not, name you're not going to wall the, the. You're not going to wall up the the bridges or the no, ports of entry. You can't. I always say bridges. Right. If you're outside of Texas, they're not bridges. Yeah. But, I, yeah. Yeah. but like, name me one wall in history that's worked. I'll wait. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, look. You know, like you know, it's one of those things. I mean, okay, but okay, but by the same token, ask anyone, ask, uh, including the Democratic politicians in El Paso, do you want yeah. to tear down the wall that y'all have up there now? That's they're fair. not going to they're not no, going to want to do it. That's absolutely fair. They're absolutely not going to want to do it. So, you know, having fencing walls in urban areas, I mean, those are Sure. those are you know, no nobody in San Diego is going to be tearing down that wall, no, right? Absolutely okay. Not. But that doesn't mean that it's working in terms of stopping illegal drugs. It's not. And so we never talk about the demand side. Never. Yeah. So there's there's like this pretend game that goes on that somehow um, these people aren't ending up in the workplace and they are Absolutely. they are and that's where the rubber meets the road for me. It's mm-hmm. like you can talk all day long about building up more infrastructure and about mm-hmm. pouring money into this, and we are pouring money into it. The state mm-hmm. of Texas is pouring billions and mm-hmm. billions of dollars. Yeah. We have a mini border patrol now. We have a mini, and not so many anymore. And and and, mm-hmm. and some of these boats that are on the river, you know, I'm, I mean, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, um, we're not. There's not a corresponding conversation about mm-hmm. what happens when they do get out of the detention that you're building mm-hmm. to put them in. What you know, and they do get out of border patrol custody mm-hmm. and ICE custody and end up in the workplace, mm-hmm. and then they get injured, and then people dump them off in the hosp- at the hospital. Right. And you know, we're not having that conversation, and I think we need to have that conversation mm-hmm. because. If you don't ever fix that, you can throw all the money in the world, and it's always one more little section, mm-hmm. one more thing to build, mm-hmm. whatever. We, but that conversation is, needs to be an integral part of the yeah. conversation. Have you seen that conversation starting to happen? And if not, what is something that you hope can push us toward that? In the 2013, I think I'm right on the year, I think it was 2013, was the last really comprehensive immigration reform. There was quite a lot of conversation mm-hmm. about that, and it did have 
a lot of e-verify stuff, and you basically had people. There needs to be some kind of compromise here. Yeah. You know, you got to have a compromise in Congress. It, 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 Congress has got to fix this. You can't mm-hmm. fix this with with more. Um, you know, it's, it's not just a few more patrols and then we yeah. get we got right. it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like the forces. You have push and pull. I mean, people. You know, I'm not the first to tell you to, to say that, but you have you have pull factors, and the mm-hmm. big pull factor is the job place. You right. know, yeah. people aren't coming here. You know, I've never had anyone say I'm I'm risking my life for in-state tuition at Austin Community College. Right, <laughs> right. go River Bats. <laughs> you know, it's it's hey, that's where I got my Spanish. A job, you know, it's yeah. a job, and so an opportunity, right? An opportunity, like, and so. The, the the conversation that needs to be had is do we need to import labor or not? Mm-hmm. And that's something that the Congress needs to decide. And if it's not, then you're gonna have to go in and and police the workface. The very first I'll I'll tell you, I I, I will um confess to something is that the very first immigration story that I wanted to do was uh, inspired by something that my wife did many, many, many years ago, which is that for a very brief period, she used a non-work social security number um, and was able to get employed, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was paid to that. And so I wondered why didn't they ever report that? How wasn't that ever reported? Mm-hmm. So I started looking and, you know, she, we've since got married and she's been, <laughs> you know, gang right. employed. Um, but, um, I wondered why didn't, why was there no connection between your reported earnings on a non-work social security number why couldn't they just show up and say, what, who is this person right. at your place of work? You know, And so I ended up filing some FOIAs, some Freedom of Information Act requests in the 90s um, to find out what the problem was. And it was basically nobody wanted to know. You know? Mm-hmm. They, they, don't they, ask, the, don't the tell. Social Security, yeah, the Social yeah. Security Administration was sending this information to what was then known as the Immigration and Naturalization Service, and they never, there, there was no, you know, the, the left hand didn't mm-hmm. know what the right hand was doing. Mm-hmm. So I never understood why it was that, that you know, but the, that they didn't catch that, but the reason was that nobody really wanted to know the answer to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the labor was being done either way. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. They they're, wanted they're, the job filled. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, despite all of the, um, partisan back and forth that happens, right? That, you know, the Democrats use it and the Republicans use it. At, they, they both use it at election time mm-hmm. to drive up their votes, ba- to, yeah. to mm-hmm. drive up votes, to, to motivate their base. And um, nobody really wants to talk about the fact that there's sort of a, when it comes to the workplace, there's kind of a bipartisan detente, you know, yeah. where it's like, Everyone, you know, once you, you know, don't come, don't come, don't come. You're here. Okay, we got a job for you. Yeah. And by the way, it may not pay what you think, and you may not get a break, and you may get worked to death, and you may. I mean, some of the stuff that happens below the checkpoints is absolutely horrendous. Yeah. Because people, those employers that are on the other side, that are in between the border and the checkpoint, know that they have a captive 
in, um, have captive employees, basically. Mm-hmm. They can't go north of the checkpoints. They're confined to that 50-mile space. And you know, there are people who don't even who get paid four four dollars an hour and mm-hmm. stuff that, that mm-hmm. are living in squalor. It's mm-hmm. terrible. Yeah, and that is something that, as a society, everyone should be concerned. Con- yeah, concerned about. And neither 100%. party neither party is concerned about it because work's getting done right. Exactly. Like, for the most part, the the job's getting done. One, they they need to be able to point at metrics at the end of an election cycle to say this is what was done. This many drugs were seized or, you know, this many people were sent back rather than right. address something that, you know, is more to what you're speaking about. Yeah, exactly, where it is more complicated because, you know, there people of all stripes are mm-hmm. benefiting or using undocumented labor. And mm-hmm. so the question is, what do you do about that? Do yeah. we... We need to make a decision, you know, mm-hmm. are we going to, do we need to import labor? Is, is that, is that the, the affirmative decision that the Congress wants to make? If so, do it and figure out a way to have whatever program you want right. to meet the labor needs. If we decide, no, you know what, we got enough, we'll do with what we have here. And if we got to raise prices and everybody has to pay more, then we're willing to do that as a society. Let's do that. But we need to do that and quit pointing fingers at each other while, mm-hmm. you know, right. people are working illegally. Yeah. Yeah. And in horrible and being exploited. And yes. being exploited. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we just yeah. kind of sit back and let it happen. I mean, I, we, 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 for this bordering on insecurity thing, that, that was one of the things that I really wanted to do was, you know, and that, that's another thing, you know, th- there's, you asked like, what, what are some of the things you didn't know? Mm-hmm. One of the things is that like, we're looking the other way in the workplace but the other one is, is there's also a lot of corruption on our side of the border. Mm-hmm. Local cops. Bribery. Bribery, sheriffs, mm-hmm. border patrol. You don't hear about it mm-hmm. that much. And is that bribery... I Very curious question, because I feel like it'd be so easy for a political person to be like, it's bribery for drugs and drugs only. Is it... A drug thing? Is it a is it a person thing? Like no, what? people smuggle. I mean, the the border hustle, um, the lead. So mm-hmm. we we lead. I I love the way that border hustle opens because it opens with a bailout yeah. in yeah. Brooks County, which is where Falfurious is, mm-hmm. the Falfurious checkpoint, and Bro- they have these all the time. I mean, they're 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 just one after another these bailouts, mm-hmm. and a bailout is basically the you know cop pulls up behind a truck. And they're like, eh, I don't know. It's kind of yeah. leaning down. Or, yeah. You know, it's dragging here. Looks like there may be some people in the back of the truck. A chase ensues. They go crash into a fence. The smuggler jumps out a lot of the times and gets away. And then everybody runs and they catch three of them or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Um, this happens all the time, right? Right. Um, but, but then you go into, I interviewed this uh, people smuggler in jail, right? Mm-hmm. He's, in, he's calling me from a detention facility and I say, what's more profitable, drugs or people? And he says, right now, the money's in the people. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the reasons for that is that the penalties for people smuggling is lower, much lower than drug smuggling. Mm-hmm. And so these people that, that, you know, as long as you don't kill anyone, you know, yeah. and typically they don't. I mean, sometimes it does lead to a horrible tragedies. People mm-hmm. get in the back of these. We've seen these horrible, horrible incidents with tractor trailers and stuff, but you know, most of the time they're making it through and, yeah. you know, they, they're getting, they don't get stopped. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I've had, I've had migrants describe to me, they remember when they get to the checkpoint, one migrant uh, who's from Nicaragua, I remember. And he said, 
um, that he remembered when they stopped in Foul Furious. I was like, how long did you stop? He's like, oh, it was like 10 seconds. Mm. The guy opened the door and said, U.S. citizen? Yeah, bye. And then, yeah, you know. Just let him go keep through. Keep going. And he, and he was like hiding up in the yeah. the, the top of the truck, you mm-hmm. know. Jeez. And, yeah, you know. And, and, and then and people also will pay. It, the, the prices are going up, mm-hmm. you know. And so... I haven't been in the field in a while on this, so sure. you know. But the the last time I was a couple of years ago, you know, I interviewed people who were paying like twenty thousand dollars for these trips, where they would Man. get they would get in a you know in a, in a plane, you know, they would get like fake, good fake documents, you know, like <laughs> quality really, fake yeah, quality documents. fake documents, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I uh, I, th- I think it was that one. It may have been the other documentary that it, the ending struck me because it was the blacked out. Yeah, um, and it was um, just such. It was heartbreaking because it was like, well, I'm I you know, I would never live here. I, uh-huh. I would never do that. I I regret taking people over because I don't believe that they're getting what they think they are. Yeah, that that was that re- that moment really really stood out to me, um, and that's effective filmmaking for sure. Because I'm still thinking about it. But, <laughs> well, um, I appreciate that because yeah, yeah. I, I really insisted on that, and I remember I, I was working on that with Time Magazine, mm-hmm. and they edited it, and they did a, a yeah. wonderful job of editing it. But it was like, this is dark, Jay. Yeah. You really want to go there? I said yes, yes. We have this mm-hmm. is like this is the moment, and I remember talking to that that guy, that mm-hmm. smuggler. Um, I don't want to say his name because right. I can't remember if I'm remembering his the name that we use for him or the name. And you don't want to mix him. You don't, don't want to mix him up. But anyway, I do remember that because I went to Reynosa, and yeah. Reynosa is one of the most dangerous places on the planet. Mm-hmm. It's very, very dangerous to go over there, really. Um, and and when I went over there, we I, I a, a source who helped me helped connect me to this guy, to this smuggler. Um, we we did it at his house. And we walked in, and right when we walked in and sat down and started talking, we hear this, you know, this this like sound. I was like, mm-hmm. and, and the smuggler said, "You hear that?" I said, "Yeah." I was like, "Is that what I think it is?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "But he said, if it were a real balacera, a real shootout, it would last longer." He said, "It's probably just um, people who are doing it to draw attention." for something that they want to do somewhere else, right? But there was, you know, the automatic gunfire yeah, that was right. very audible mm-hmm. the minute, you know, mm-hmm. when I, and mm-hmm. not that far away. I mean, um, and, you know, high caliber too. I mean, it was, right. it was pretty scary. Yeah. And it was, it was scary to be over there, but I never felt like I was about to get killed sure. or anything. Yeah. So I guess, you know, when it happens, you know, you don't expect it, right? Yeah. Um, you never hear the one that gets you, they say, but... <laughs> But I was really struck with mm-hmm. with what that guy was saying, and, yeah. and some of the stuff that he said that that didn't make it was he was talking about people tunnels. He said mm-hmm. that there are people tunnels, mm-hmm. you know, that people that no one knows anything about, yeah. right? And the other thing that he that that smugglers have told me they call them líneas especiales, special lines for cartel members, where it's mm-hmm. like it's. It's ninety nine point nine percent. You're not going to get busted here. Sure. Like it, we, you, you know, and it's 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 either done for the cartel, so it's like free, you know, for mm-hmm. them because mm-hmm. it's their cartel moving them. Yeah. Or it's they call VIPs, you know, high VIPs, like people that are really high connected. Yeah. Connected, mm-hmm. super connected. They can foot the bill. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
and Jeez. and it's like a lot a lot of money you know yeah. it's like mm-hmm. i don't know fifty thousand dollars or yeah. something but it's like a sure deal you know yeah Jeez. Man. Yeah, we need to do a whole other episode with Dude, you man. on the border. I know that you probably have other things you got to do today, so we'll wrap this up yeah. pretty quick. Um, I mean this question humorously, but I think it'll, I'm just curious what the answer is. Who did build the cages? Who did build the Who the, built the cages? the cages? I just remember that one moment from the debates where Trump wouldn't shut up, and it was about the cages at the border. Wait, like, Trump wouldn't shut up? Yeah, I know. Well, right? when you say cages, what do you mean? Are you talking about the chain link fit? Because, see, see, when, when you mm-hmm. go into these detention facilities, they hold people in... Various places. Yeah, in various yeah. places. And there 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 is... Um, chain link. I mean, like, mm-hmm. yeah, th- those have been around for a long time. That pre that obviously predates Trump. That yeah, wasn't, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know. So um, they're like existing holding facilities, I guess. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, you know, and and, and at, at different times, you know, what what Trump did invent was the aggressive family mm-hmm. separation policy. That, that part, it, okay. That it, it now there were there have been families that have been separated for various reasons for years. But in terms of like, you know, the affirmative policy of saying we're going to separate pretty much everyone who crosses, yeah. you know, uh, that was, that was a Trump administration yeah. thing. And the, the, the family separation crisis mm-hmm. was during the Trump administration, but yeah. did, did, were people, did, did, were there families that got separated report? Yeah. You know, sometimes what happens is, They'll come and they'll go, wait, this isn't your parents and who are you or mm-hmm. you can't prove it or, you know, I mean, there, there, there have been situations like that that have happened mm-hmm. before, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The Border Hustle does follow, uh, the film Border Hustle does follow a little girl, Haley, mm-hmm. um, and her father. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a situation where, another to bring Emily Ramshaw in again, she was like, we got to cover this family separation crisis at the border and I didn't really want to do it because I was like oh god I feel like we're I feel like we're we waited too long you know yeah. I'm not sure I'm going to get any good scoops and she's like you speak Spanish you've done this on stuff on the border you did bordering and security you have to do this mm-hmm. you have to do this so I was like okay and so the next thing you know I'm at this facility in Livingston Texas and I'm talking to this guy crying talking about how he can't find you know he doesn't mm-hmm. know where his, his daughter he's been separated mm-hmm. from his daughter and and the first thing I said was before I leave, God, I only had like a certain amount of time with him. And I said, give me the phone number of your family in Honduras. Mm-hmm. And so I called his family in, in Honduras and they were desperate to get information about him. And so mm-hmm. I said, look, I've, I've talked to your son and, and your husband. In this case, Claudia was the, was the wife. And tell me about it. And, and then um, a, a colleague said... Um, make sure when you talk to Claudia, tell her next time she talks to Haley, the little girl, mm-hmm. um, ask her if um, uh, she'll film her encounter. And she did. And that ended up being a very powerful mm-hmm. part mm-hmm. of the movie where the g- little girl just breaks down and cries and just is sobbing, un- you know, inconsolably. And um, I'm really glad my, my colleague, Shannon told me to mm-hmm. do that because that ended up being great. I'm, at one point, I remember, I won't say who it was, but it was a national news outlet called and said, because we had run a still picture of it, and they were yeah. like, do you have the video? I was like, yeah. And I said, well, will you give it to us? I'm like, no, I'm not going <laughs> to use it for my yeah. documentary. And they're like, you know, do you know who we are kind of thing? You know, like, 
this will get a lot of attention. I'm like, I know it'll get a lot of attention when I put it in my documentary yeah. too. Like, yeah. I'm not going to give this to you. No, he just couldn't <laughs> believe awesome. they kept asking yeah. over and over. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, no, I'm not going to give this yeah. to you. You know? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. And I, the only other curious question I have, um, when you're doing these stories in particular, when you're traveling across the border, speaking to sources, doing these interviews, does it ever catch people off guard that like the six foot three gringo is speaking like flawless Spanish? Um, I wouldn't say flawless. It's, you know, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I get that more in, in French, to be honest with you, really? my <laughs> wife, because of my wife, I have a Southern French accent. So they're like, sure. how do you have this, this accent? <laughs> like your dialect this is, is a weird actually, region yeah, of yeah, France, yeah. right? Um, but, um, you know, no, I think that people are, mm-hmm, you know, sure. there are, there are a lot of, a lot, and, and also in, in, uh, in Mexico, there are a lot of gringo-looking gotcha. people that, right. that are native no. Mexican, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. natives of Mexico and mm-hmm. right. different places. So I, 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 I didn't get that too much. Um, I, I do think that people, uh, w- one of the things that I found is that people are much more willing to talk to you on the other side of the border mm-hmm. than they are on our side of the border. So like really? one sure. of the problems that you have, and another problem that you have is that you end up talking to people over there in shelters, and that ends up being kind of a small percentage. And mm-hmm. so we get sometimes a distorted picture about things because if you want to go interview mm-hmm. somebody, you go interview someone in a shelter. Well, the shelter is for the most marginalized groups that yeah. right. hire a smuggler. If you can afford a smuggler, you can hire you're a over smuggler. Here. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, then you get, yeah. then you don't have to go into the shelters. Mm-hmm. Then you're staying in nicer places. Mm-hmm. And you're also not getting caught by the immigration authorities in Latin America because they're getting paid right. off all the way. Mm. So our view is very warped. Our view way. is kind of warped of what, yes, I, I do think that. You okay. Know? Um, Good enough. I mean, in, in some cases, you know, for those who can afford it, and I'm not saying this is everybody. It's, it's not everybody. It's, it's, it's a smaller tranche that can right. afford to pay these exorbitant fees. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the, the smugglers a lot of times are telling them, you know, now you got to go. Now's a good time. And they, they get led into these things and, and sure. it's, it's horrible. Sometimes a horrible results. And also though, you're not going to get through Tamaulipas, Mexico mm-hmm. without paying a smuggler. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost impossible now to freelance it. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the day, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, People would go back and forth. They wouldn't have to pay anybody. Those days right. are gone. That doesn't yeah. happen hardly. You know, there's just almost no one who can do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Fair. They'll kill you. <laughs> well, I, I have. Um, well, I'm glad you're alive. Yeah, yeah, I, I was gonna say, I'm, I'm glad you're here talking to us, man. Uh, two questions. One being, do you have a favorite piece of work? Um, I know we haven't talked about your book. Uh, we will definitely link out to it and mm-hmm. all of that type of thing. Um, do you have a favorite piece of work? If so, which one? And what is, in your opinion, um, and I am asking for the opinion, uh, the role of non-biased investigative journalism going forward? Um, I think I, I, I have a couple of favorite pieces of work. I think mm-hmm. the the favorite, my favorite piece that I did as a writing job, just as, as a, a, a you know a, a, a digestible news story, mm-hmm. was a was six months later piece uh, out of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And the reason why I like that piece is I, th- I thought I did a good job on the writing, mm-hmm. but it was 
also partly because I, I went into it hating the idea. I remember telling my editor, like, this is stupid. Nobody does six months later. Mm-hmm. That's not a real, mm-hmm. that's a fake anniversary, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, he, but he was so right that it was the what is perfect this, the time. Anniversary? Yeah. It was the perfect time to do yeah. it. I remember I was traveling with a photographer, mm-hmm. Tom Pennington, and he just had a way of spotting stuff. And it was dark. All the lights were out because there's no electricity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He said, I saw a light go back. And it was it was in the ninth lower ninth ward, and we ran across this guy named Roland Moore, and Roland Moore was rebuilding his house with the using a light that he hooked up his a headlight that he took out of his taxi cab and hooked it up to a battery basically, mm-hmm. and was putting sheetrock in his house. So he was rebuilding in the middle of the you know not in the middle of the night. It was like. Eight and I we had just left Galatoire, mm-hmm. yes. yeah, which is a great restaurant, right? And the contrast between eating in sure. Galatoire's and then going to the lower ninth ward where there's no lights on mm-hmm. and seeing this guy like I don't care what happens, I'm gonna rebuild here. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he told me this terrible story about how his mother literally died after a few minutes after being upset, died from a heart attack. That she got, you know, was induced after being upset for not getting her FEMA money. And I was like, here's this guy who lost his mom, lost his mom, and is rebuilding his house from his taxi cab. A guy who remembers um, seeing Fats Domino. We used to ask Fats Mm -hmm. Domino for quarters. I stood outside of Fats Domino's house months earlier. Um, in in chest waders, and and I saw the fats on the. Mm-hmm. He had this wrought iron, you know. I was mm-hmm. like, wow, that's Fats Domino's house, and you know, just all of that. Like this guy's rebuilding, even after what happened to his mom. Like, wouldn't you want to just go away? Mm-hmm. And I and I remember, I, I the, the the phrase that I used was like, it's you know, this is the kind of draw that water because he was right by the, mm-hmm. the the Mississippi River and New Orleans can mm-hmm. have on a person, you know. Yeah. And so that's my favorite written story. My favorite right. investigative story was right here in Austin, Texas, and it was called Paid to Prosecute, and it was this unusual prosecutorial unit. I teamed up with Tony Plahetsky, okay. who you should have on your program if you haven't already. Tony, we're, we're going to be Tony, reaching out pretty Tony, soon. Tony Plahetsky is great, <laughs> and, and he and I teamed up on this. I was at the Tribune, Texas Tribune. He was at the Statesman, and we teamed up on this. And we basically ended this program where they were a, a, a prosecutorial unit was funded entirely from a, by uh, Texas Mutual Insurance, a, a, a workers' comp provider, Whoa. to prosecute quote crimes against the company. And it was like kind of like private justice. I was like, how is this? Happening? Is how is this happening? Kind of like with the Parsonage yeah, yeah. thing, Austin, right? right? Like, how is this right? happening? Yeah, how is this happening? happening? Right. And I just really thought that it was, um, I just thought it was spectacular mm-hmm. yeah. in terms of, um, like, result. Like, you know, Kirk Watson was like, I'm going to, and he told me, he was like, I'm going to get rid of this, you know, quote me about how I think this is wrong. He said, you know, let me get through this legislature, um, but I'm going to get rid of this. And then the next wow. legislative session, he did. He, he, he ended the funding and mm-hmm. moved it over. They, it's still a, a similar thing happens in the sense that companies can go and file a complaint as a prosecutor, but they don't get to pay for the unit. Mm-hmm. And then they just, all they did was they put a little assessment on everyone's 
you know, like policy for like yeah. two cents or whatever, and they mm-hmm. fund these yeah. this prosecution. So I thought that was really, That's really and, cool. and I. I I lost I, I I got a silver we got the silver something I think it was when Brian Rosenthal, who went to the New York Times and mm-hmm, he, mm-hmm. He admittedly had a better story which was about about um, the how in public education the disability mm-hmm. the special ed all you know that that was a mess and they weren't um, funding it properly yeah. um, I think got the gold that year but. That was one that was like I thought that should have gotten more attention than it did, mm-hmm, but whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it, it did. It had a high impact. It's getting it attention from um, a little over a thousand listeners this month, right? So okay. we at least have that. <laughs> <You're> ready. <laughs> and I, you know, if nothing else, take away from this experience, you got to have some type of radio podcast. Something your voice is incredible. You have a great. I was going to ask, why do you not have voice? a show? Because you have the perfect radio voice. <laughs> I, I, we, they. Um, Todd Wiseman at the uh, Texas Tribune said the golden pipes, but I, I, <laughs> I, I, I do have a couple of ideas for podcasts. I've got a great, what I think is a great podcast idea yeah. that I can't tell you about on the air, but um, we'll, yeah, we'll shut we'll, the sauce okay. in and we'll hear about that. Um, <laughs> ask the last question. Last question, but first, want to give you the chance. Mm-hmm. Um, where can we follow you? Yeah. What's your documentaries, your book, just plug all the things that you want people to go check out. I think, you know, just. Twitter mainly just okay. you, know, you, can, you can find all the instructions on Twitter just add by J Root B Y yeah. that is like the it's by me add by yeah. J A Y R O O T and and then everything leads from there if you want to send me an email I have I have a website called jroot.us okay it's mainly you know I have future plans for it but mm-hmm. that's something else you can look if you want to know more about me yeah um, it's got it's kind of bio, biographical and it has that New Orleans story there okay we'll go check that that out you did heck yeah Yeah. that's awesome and yeah this is the last question we make sure to ask every guest this it's really the only thing that ties all of our interviews together but it's the complete basis of the show what does it mean to you to be texan it means a lot boy it really (laughs) really means a lot you know i love the history of texas i love being a texan um I think, uh, you know, I love the food. I love the people. Um, it means the world to me to be mm-hmm. a Texan. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Heck yeah. It means well, the you, world. means the world. As y'all know, at by J Root on Twitter. Hit Everything all the links is, from there. Yeah. Uh, we can follow your work in the Houston Chronicle, a couple of other places. We'll be on the lookout for that documentary for me and your son as well. Okay. Really excited um, about that. So, Jay, truly thank you for your time today, for making the effort to come all the way over here. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you once again, Jay, for your time. I just keep playing his voice in my head to narrate my yeah, own I'm life. Like, hey, how much would it cost for us to get him to do our ad reads? Yeah, or just the whole podcast? Right. Like we talk into him, but he's just the one he, like, making he's the noise. Your piece, he's yeah. Do all the, it's gonna he, be weird when he does both of us, <laughs> mm-hmm. but like he'll figure it out. Everyone will like it more. Yeah. But we are so thankful for your time, Jay. If you're listening, we are so appreciative of you and the work you're doing. Can't wait to see the documentary. Really excited about it. Him and his son are working on. Once again, give him a follow at ByJRoot on Twitter. Really good follow. He has a link tree there for any other bits of his work or places you can follow him. But just go to Twitter at ByJRoot, give him the follow, and you'll you'll have a good time. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of good time, 
Yeah. And taxes. Did you, uh, did you have a little encounter? I had, I had a little encounter. I was at the DMV because I needed to do some DMV stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm standing in line. I'm standing in line. And I'm waiting. And then I see this yellow flash go right, right past me. You- and I'm like, whoa, he's here. And then I get nervous because he's always messing with me. He's always messing with you. But he just flashed right by everybody in the line at the DMV, skirts like a hockey stop on his bike to a stop at the counter, and the people at the front are like, whoa, Lance, we have a restraining order. You're not supposed to be here. And then he yells at them because apparently a bike cop pulled him over because he didn't have his lights on. Mm. And so he literally jumped on the desk of the DMV person, unscrewed the light bulb, put it in his mouth, and it turned on. Right. And he just biked away. It was all that energy. And then he just biked away. Short and sweet. Short and sweet. Even about you this time. I know. I was really relieved. I just saw him this time. Were you were you a little disappointed? No, because he's this close to like actually harming me, Mm -hmm. which is getting Lance. You're 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 kind of scary. You need to back off a little bit. Right. So if you see his yellow jersey putting around town, well, you won't see the yellow jersey. You'll see this. Bright white flash. Well, I was going to say, or the bright light yeah, yeah. that is now in his mouth being powered by his legs moving right. on that bicycle. By his anger. I just burped so loud. <coughs> um, Man, unfortunately, these mics don't move at all. I Well, I moved my head. <laughs> <laughs> Does coffee make you burp, or is it just me? Uh, I think it's just you. Is that acid reflux? Do you, do you need to slow down on the coffee? No, never. I mean, obviously, we're never resting. And we're never resting. Yeah, we're 10% never off. Never rest. 10% Texas at neverrest.com. Yeah. Also, if you guys see Lance anywhere out and about, we want to hear about it. DM us on Instagram at Pod. Share your Lance sightings with Absolutely. us. Absolutely. They can even email us now. Email they? us at texishpod at gmail.com. Subject line, Lance sightings. Also, feel free to go watch the interview with Jay on YouTube in a couple of days. It's not up yet, but we will share it yes, when it's will. up. Go ahead and go to YouTube, Texas Pod, hit subscribe so that you'll be notified Please. when that video interview goes of, up. A lot of fun stuff coming up. A lot of fun stuff coming up there. Go to Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars because let's face it, this is way better than this Rogan. This is a five star podcast. Rogan's just sitting there yelling they're about just, they're just getting drunk and talking about balls. And he and he's like, oh, CNN, and I'm just sharing stuff. We get it, dude. You get it. You don't talk like about something else. At least we're changing it up right? every day. New guests, guests, new, new guests, content, new topics. All the time. And then you're learning all about people you didn't know about. Exactly. So five stars. And hey. There are two people who get T-shirts. There are two people who get T-shirts. We have two new reviews, which means... Two people get T-shirts. It also means there are only two T-shirts left. Two T-shirts left. So capitalize on that. Leave a written review to get your text-ish T-shirt. Hit those five stars. Follow on Spotify. Download on Apple. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow on Instagram. At Texas Pod across the board. Absolutely. We appreciate all of you. Those of you who are leaving reviews, we appreciate you more. Except you, Steve. Except for you, Steve. All right, y'all. Have a great day. Bye, Bye, y'all. Who's Steve? (laughs)